Hey, I don't want you. I want Judge Wapner. <laughs> I have to flee the fifth dimension. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, let's see here. What we got? We got your uh, crack and ice cocaine here. And you got your pills and your vials of coke and your snorters and pipes and grinders. And get your gun here. And you got your switchblade knives. Well, since you're all having a horrible time on some kind of a hopped-up date, I believe that we can get this all over relatively simply and have you people on your way, so step forward to the bench, please. Hey, see that? Nice for understanding, Judge, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you take care of this. I'm going to go out for a smoke. Go for a smoke? Dennis, they got guns, drugs. One of them trying to kill you. I'm saying to watch. Okay, well, I hereby find all parties culpable in these matters as charged, and so choose to invade the maximum levy for these violations, and do therefore deem that you be conveyed to a holy, oh, awful place of execution, wherein you shall be put to death. Yeah! What's going on? Hello again, friends. This is the Film Effect Podcast. Good morning, Film Effect. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the game right there. That's World War Three. Fucking hot recording right now. I literally never wanted to punch movie in its face more than I had last night. Definitely worth your time. It's it's definitely worth revisiting. Fifteen minutes in, I'm like, uh, Dorothy, we're not in Oakland anymore. It's in 4K, buddy. Check it out. It was kind of like an afternoon, you like drive time type thing. Or like the type of podcast you listen to at work. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. Greetings and salutations, movie geeks and podcast freaks. And welcome back once again to another edition of the Film Effect Podcast. A weekly show that deep dives into a different film each episode in an effort to give it that full film effect treatment. I'm Ed. And I'm Corey. And this is nothing but trouble. Give me the keys, Mike. Chevy Chase. Hey, you just passed the Garden State Parkway South. Don't worry, I'll get you there. Demi Moore. Oh, no, cop. Driver, step outside the car, please. John Candy. Read him. Yeah, that's nice, thanks. The lower back, please. I got an itch right up in there. It's good, thank you. Not today, sir. This may be Valkenvania, but it is still America. Wouldn't mind, would you just write a ticket here or... We could settle it some other way, perhaps. That's not the way things work around here. What is this place? Revolving district court for the village and shire of Balkanvania is now in order. The Honorable Reeve Alvin Balkanizer presides. Dan Aykroyd. Put out that dog rocket! Nothing but trouble. I'm so sorry. Hey, you know, you and I ought to spend a little more time together. I'd like that. Would you? Welcome to the last resort. You look pretty this evening, sister. Doing something different with your hair? <laughs> Where something's always cooking. How about a nice Hawaiian punch? Uh, There's some good friends. Okay, let's eat. Where someone's always shaking. And anything's better than... 
house policy. What's house policy? But whatever man touches her's the one she keeps. What? All they wanted. Oh no, wait a minute. I just went through a damn stoplight. Was a little getaway. I think the two of you'd make a perfect couple. You make this a bride. No, no, not in front of all these people, Your Honor. Mm -hmm. Now, all they got was nothing but trouble. Alright, nothing but trouble. A businessman and his friends are captured by a sadistic judge and his equally odd family in a bizarre mansion in the backwoods. So finally, nothing but trouble is being discussed on the podcast. Not sure why it took nearly 100 episodes for us to do it, but hey, the moment's finally here, so let's make, uh, let's make the best out of it, shall we? Uh, I would argue we should have waited another hundred episodes. Oh man, it's gonna, <laughs> it's gonna be one of them episodes. Jesus Christ! I'll tell you I'm what, just man. Joking. I've never seen more tomatoes thrown at a film than the amount nothing but trouble received, and still continues to receive to this day. Like, excuse me. I think all those people were watching a different movie. Than, than me because nothing about this meant to be taken seriously one bit. It's a harmless comedy with a fun concept that just didn't catch on and I'm really stuck to talk about it today so um yeah I guess uh <laughs> I mean I guess we got some thoughts so let's, let's dive into it shit first time viewings <laughs> it's, it's just that you see this is actually uh, my, my first time no, no, my first, it's my first time uh, since my first time, so technically that's my second time, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to suck at it. So if I'm not up to, all right, uh, for me it was an HBO uh, movie that was always on when I was younger, like I don't know, eight or nine when it first premiered. Because this movie's about thirty-one years old now. Like, this was just on all the time. Like, this is one of the movies that I saw nonstop, you know, growing up on HBO and, I guess, Cinemax, too, sometimes. Yeah. My first time viewing was the same exact thing. I mean, it was constantly on uh, the movie channels. I think uh, sitting down and rewatching it for this episode is the first time I've watched the movie, probably from start to finish in one shot you know i've seen the whole movie several times just because it was on the movie channel so much but i i would always watch it in bits and pieces like i would watch the beginning and then lose interest and go do something else or the ending or the middle uh so i think watching it for this episode was the first time i just sat down watched the movie from start to finish uh and it's the first time i've seen this movie and probably since those cable days like i don't think i've ever seen it uh, sense, but you know, I, I made a joke at the beginning. I, you know, just I'm not. I don't hate this movie. I'm not sharpening my uh, scissors like Sean would say. You know, sharpening your daggers. Episode. Yeah, I'm, I'm not cutting the cell celluloid in this situation. <laughs> I do acknowledge that this movie. I would not say this movie is a good movie. I would say, you know, it, it, it can be enjoyable, but I wouldn't say it's a good movie by any stretch. All right, it's a story time. Tell me a story. Wait. Like my story? No, not your story. A story. Since you can't keep your mouth shut long enough for me to read my paper, tell me a story. I don't think I know any stories. You don't know any stories? No. All right, I'll tell you a story. This is a newspaper, right? It's 90% bullshit. But it's entertaining. That's why I read it, because it entertains me. You won't let me read it. So you entertain me with your bullshit. Tell me a story right now. Go. Uh, Let's talk about the origins. Just where the hell... Did this movie come from? 
So, honestly, it's based on a personal experience between Dan Aykroyd and his brother, Peter. Well, mainly Dan, because... so, uh, so what happened with Dan was in 78, he was known for like road tripping a lot. He would always go like travel across country when he was like on his, between his like farmhouse in Canada and New York for SNL. Like he was always commuting. So in 78, he was doing his usual commute and uh, he got popped for doing 50 and a 30 and the police officer took him. You know, he basically wanted to pay it right there and settle it, but the cop was like, nah, you got to come with me. So he took him eight miles out to a mansion where the local justice of the peace held a kangaroo court in the middle of the night for a trial where uh, Ackroyd was fined uh, 50 bucks and he was offered to stay and have some tea with the judge, uh, this lady. And he was just so fascinated by the events that he did. And the two talked for four hours. Um, so we took that, he had that in his back pocket, and then in 78, the producer of the film, uh, Robert Weiss, he, uh, Robert Weiss, uh, they attended, uh, a screening of Hellraiser, Dan, Peter, and Weiss, and at the time, he had a, uh, the, this producer, Robert, had a fractured rib, and he told him that, you know, he wanted to watch a horror film. Just couldn't watch a comedy because it hurt to laugh, mainly. So, you know, they chose Hellraiser. And the audience was laughing at the movie throughout. So, a light bulb went off. And we suggested that they make a horror comedy together. Since the audiences wanted to laugh and, you know, be scared at the same time. So, um, originally it was called Get... G.I.T., and then Road the Ruin, and then Trick House, Trick House, blah, before it was changed to, again, Valkenvania, and then before its release, Warner Brothers called out Nothing But Trouble. And this was a film that he described, Dan Aykroyd, as a blend between Beetlejuice and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, so yeah, he took this concept, like I said, and went with it. They... Uh, like I said, his brother Peter is credited as coming up with the story, and then Dan Aykroyd directed it, his first and only directorial film, and he's the writer, the sole writer of the movie as well. So, $40 million budget, we'll get into all that at the box office. Uh, Holy shit, $40 million? I didn't yeah. know that. Oh yeah, dude, we'll, oh get, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it later on. Uh, they started production on May 7th, 1990 in LA under the, t- under the title Trick House. And remember that $40 million I was telling you about just a second ago? Well, the film yeah. went over budget, $5 million. <laughs> they also went nearly a week God. over the schedule on the shoot. The, uh, original promotional poster was commissioned by Boris Vallejo who is uh, the same guy who did the National Lampoon's Vacation poster. Kind of like a uh, like a Drew Struzan type. Um, one of those. And but what happened was um, the Warner Brothers opted to go with the generic floating head poster instead. So that's why he had the little... The bottom of the poster is the whole Valkyrie set, and then the top is just the four leads: Demi Moore, Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd, and John Candy. Um, let's see here. The script caught the attention of Warner Brothers, 
who wanted the John Candy to be co-star. So that's where uh, that's where he came from was the studio. They also wanted Chevy Chase to play Thorn. Uh, originally, Ackroyd wanted to play that role. Uh, Ackroyd agreed once they you know mentioned the highest like, like a star power name like Chevy Chase. Granted, this was in the early '90s. This was kind of like when he was going downhill in popularity. Chevy Chase, one would argue that, um, and films like this did him no favors. Uh, and then they, they couldn't find the director. They, the, the studio got behind all these stars and to play different roles in the film. Powerhouse cast, but no director. So that's when Ackroyd stepped in and volunteered. Uh, he, he said that he would direct the film to secure the deal. And um, yeah, so that's what happened. After it was filmed, uh, he screened it for the director's cut. He screened his director's cut for Warner Brothers. Uh, this, the, the executives were just, nah, not about it, so they pressured him into toning it down, they, apparently this was, like, a grittier, darker, had, like, cartoonish violence, which we kind of saw teased, uh, during the, the bone stripper scene, um, but I'm, I couldn't find it anywhere, dude, and I searched for two whole days to find out exactly what was cut. But I could not find anything. And that bums me the fuck out. Uh, but yeah, it got toned down from an R to a PG-13. And in doing so, because originally this was slated to come out Christmas 1990. This was supposed to be Warner Brothers Christmas movie for 1990. Their big studio Christmas film. <laughs> but oh my gosh. because they wanted to go through the, the, the rating change and, and to water it down... It had to get pushed back two months, so they swapped uh, films because they had a backup movie. They had another film that they were filming at the same time that was a big picture for them at the time. It was also, ironically enough, a bomb. The Bonfather of Vanities. So they switched. Hold on. They, yeah. Hold on a second. So 89 was Christmas Vacation, right? 89 was vac- Christmas Vacation, correct, sir. So you're telling me this movie almost followed Christmas Vacation as like the studio's big Christmas movie. Holy yes. shit. Yeah. I had no idea. Never thought about that. You're right. Chevy Chase, man. Star power. But yeah, uh, Bonfather at the Vanities ended up coming out on Christmas 1990 and bombed. And then two months later, this came out on Valentine's Day weekend and bombed. So uh, yeah. No one even showed up to Ackwood's premiere. He had a premiere that he put on himself for the cast and crew. Not even Ackwood himself went to it. Like, none of the cast, <laughs> none of the principal cast was there. Ackroyd included. Just, yeah, man. Like, morale was down on this movie. So, uh, before we get into it, let's talk Laptop 5. Rob, it's your turn. Okay. I feel kind of basic today. Top five side ones. Track ones. Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash. Mm. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit, Off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough, not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a... Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though and not on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection, the song is Radiation oh. Ruling the uh, Nation. Let's do top five favorite box office bombs, speaking of. Um, Jesus Christ. I don't think I've ever had a top five list with so many honorable mentions. Like, I called this the never-ending list of honorable mentions. Just real quick. Uh, Bad Moon, Death of Smoochie, which is coming this week. 
Dread, Waterworld, Glengarry Glen Ross, The Frighteners, Man on the Moon, Big Trouble in Little China, Heathers, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, Across the Eighth Universe, I'm sorry, Eighth Dimension, uh, Live by Night, Terminator, Dark Fate, and Nothing But Trouble. Those are all my honorable mentions. My number five, Dark City, a film that I was just thinking this morning, you and I need to put a, uh, an episode together on that. Because we saw this opening night, and I fucking, I I need a reason to go back and rewatch this again. So let's do the damn thing sometime this summer. uh, Like I messaged you this morning about, you know, I want to get in the habit of doing like meetings so we can, you know, hash out the schedule and shit. You know, because you're a part of this too. Maybe you have suggestions. Dark City's a must, though. We got to cover Dark City. So uh, how about you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, excited about Dark City. So, uh, yeah, honorable mentions. I mean, there's so many films that have underperformed at the so box office. So many. I mean, you know, for every big hit or moderately successful movie, there's probably two that aren't. So I don't necessarily have honorable mentions, but I mean, I, I mean, if you ask me to put a list together of all the movies I like that didn't do well at the box office, it would be a mile long. So, you know, it, it would be tough for me to kind of um, just keep on going with honorable mentions. Uh, yeah. But my number five was actually one of your honorable mentions, um, Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. Just, I think, one of, like, the most underrated movies I, I've ever seen. Like, just a horror movie or a scary movie, I guess, but accessible for, you know, more people, fun in all the right ways. Michael J. Fox, uh is awesome in the lead just a movie i rewatch and enjoy every time and when i say it to people they have just no idea what i'm talking about most of the time i mean obviously like my movie friends yes but uh for a normal person they have no fucking idea what frighteners are uh so just uh criminally underrated underseen uh, but yeah number five frighteners you know what's funny about that is uh last holiday season when uh me and Sean interviewed, or rather, it was more of a conversation. I hate using the word interview, because it's more of a conversation, hence the title of that show that we do, A Conversation With. Uh, D. Wallace, who's in The Frighteners, and I mentioned The Frighteners, and I called it vastly underrated, and she just, like, stopped me, and was just like, yes! Like, even she agrees that that movie just, like, did not get the love that it deserved 26-odd years ago. Um, Hell of a conversation, by the way. I, that I'm I'm really bummed out that like that's one of our lesser listened to episodes. Um, and yeah, because D. Wallace is just the best, and I was so happy to get that opportunity. Like I'll never forget that day when I got that email that the you know it, or it, not not email that was a Sean rather I guess got the email and he sent me the message and like. I, I was at work and I was just like, I just remember saying to myself, holy fucking shit. And, you know, it, I wish we had more time to talk to her, but, you know, uh, half hour ain't bad. But it's a good episode, you know, check it out, guys. Uh, the D. Wallace, who's, like I said, The Frighteners and so many movies, God. It's, it's, it's one of those things where it's so many movies you can't even think of just one. Uh, Cujo, The Howling, just, there you go, there's two. E.T., Christ, it's Elliot's mom from E.T., you know, but so many, and Hills Have Eyes, I'm not going to get into all this, it's, I, I'll be here all day spitting out 
name movies that D. Ross has been in. But yeah, go to it's a great conversation, gang. Check that out. I think we did, yeah, back in December. It was like right after Thanksgiving. Like right before Christmas that episode dropped. But yeah. Uh D. Ross, good one. Um where are we at? So yeah, number four for me. Uh previous episode, speaking of Last Action Hero. Um I mean, like I've always said, and I'll say it again, a movie that was way ahead of its time back in 93, so. Yeah, I agree. That movie was way ahead of its time. Um, yeah, yeah, it's one I love. I, I wish I was on that episode. I, I don't know why I wasn't on that one. Um, but yeah, my number four is a movie when I think a lot of people talk about big box office bombs. I think this is one of the ones that always comes up. And I wanted to put it on my list just because I always appreciate it. I always liked the movie. I never understood like why it was always viewed in such a negative light. But my number four is Waterworld. Um, you know, it's not my favorite movie, but I think when a lot of people, like I said, talk about bombs, that's one of them. And it's a good, it's a cool movie. Like the production to that movie is insane. Like all the water stuff, all the action. Uh, Dennis Hopper's the villain is awesome. You know, Kevin Costner, I'm not a huge fan of, but he's okay. That, you know, I would say it's a better Costner movie, uh, but it's just an enjoyable movie. And I think a lot of people didn't see it just because they heard it was a bomb and it wasn't successful. But I mean, it's definitely worth a watch, especially if you're a fan, uh, or a fan of action around that time. I think it, it holds up pretty well. I love Waterworld so much, but it just got a bad reputation, bad word of mouth, and it 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 failed before it even got the opportunity to succeed. You know, it, it just, it was a movie that fell between the cracks for reasons unknown and it just didn't catch on. And, uh, it, yeah, it, that and, uh, Cutthroat Island that came out around the same time were just two films that were just known for being the worst of worst bombs. And, uh, I mean, looking back, there have been much bigger bombs since then, but, you know, for its time, I just remember those being, like, always brought up on, like, entertainment shows, like Entertainment Tonight and Access Hollywood and whatever, you know. It was always, you know, extra or whatever, but they're always talking about shit like Waterworld. And, you know, I don't get it because it's, it's a great movie. I love Waterworld. I'm actually standing here looking at my arrow copy of it on Blu-ray right now. And like, yeah, we really got to cover that. I actually contemplated doing, uh, making that my number five in, in place of Dark City. But Dark City ended up making the cut, unfortunately. But yeah, Waterworld's so good. We gotta, That's another one we got to cover one of these days sooner than later. But anyway, uh, my number three is hands down my all-time favorite sequel of uh, ever like no matter what genre all genres just ever in, in, in the name of sequels and that is gremlins 2 the new batch i can't wait to cover that movie that is the funnest fucking movie ever um it's a film that it's just in on its own joke there's just such a fun story behind it involving joe dante in the studio of why it turned out to be the way it is because you compare it to the first one it's a polar opposite film it, and it's just genius and 
still to this day, I just, I laugh and get all giddy watching it the same way I did as a kid, checking it out back in 1990. So, yeah, number three. And, and it, it, it was a bomb. So, number three for me, Gremlins 2. Yeah, I always like that story. Like, Joe Dante's like, you want me to make another one? Fuck you, I'll make another one, all right. <laughs> I always enjoy that. But, yeah, yeah that's a good one. Uh, so, my number three is one people might not think of necessarily, but it always sticks in my head as a bomb, especially since since it's from such a successful director. Uh, People don't necessarily think about it, but my number three is the King of Comedy. Uh, So obviously Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro. Yeah. It was a flop. Like, I I think the budget wasn't huge. I think it was like maybe 15, 20 million, but nobody saw it i think it only made like four or five million uh, but uh the critical reception was poor at the time people i don't think understood it didn't get it you know i think maybe it was a little bit ahead of its time but when i look back at scorsese's filmography that's one of my favorite movies i mean i i've rewatched it several times in the past several years and it just gets better every time i just think it was so far ahead i mean you know it's very similar to the joker uh, just in structure and in tone and the Joker made a billion dollars. So it just tells you right there. I think this movie just came at the wrong time. Um, so it was a flop for him, but uh, I think it's fantastic. I think it's an excellent movie. People should absolutely revisit. So my number three King comedy. All right. So my number two is all time favorite vampire movie near dark from 1987. Catherine Bigelow yet another movie that, Hmm. Well, we do have a horrorthon coming up, so uh, that's all I'm gonna say. Yeah, near dark. It's just, it's just like the ultimate horror vampire western. Um, you get a lot out of that movie. Um, you, you know, you get you get a big bang for your buck, and so um, yeah, I I I'm just kind of like gonna say that and just move on because I don't want to. I want to save my my thoughts and and everything else for the inevitable episode that may or may not be coming this October. So yeah, that's uh, my number two, Near Dark. Oh, and fucking Bill Paxton, man. Him and uh, Lance Hendrickson (laughs) both in that movie. Jesus Christ. I mean, for those of you who don't know, our finger-looking-good category, the soundbite's taken from Near Dark. That's Bill Paxton saying that, so... In the uh, yeah. the infamous massacre scene in the diner, so or the not the diner, the bar, yeah, whatever. No, yeah, that's no, funny. Every episode, you guys hear uh, Bill Paxton near dark. <laughs> that's right. Um, so my number two is a movie uh, that came out recently, and it's a really great movie. I don't know if it's going to be one of my favorites of all time, but I just wanted to put it on here. Cause I think it brings up an interesting just point uh, that we are in cinema right now. So my number two is the last duel. Uh, you know, it just came out. What was it? Uh, a year ago. Came out in um, October. Ridley. Yeah. Ridley Scott um, starring Matt Damon, Adam driver, Ben Affleck. Fantastic movie. I mean, awesome is just as far as concept of having three different points of view with slightly differing realities having the brutal duel at the end which it lives up to the title last duel i mean that duel is fucking brutal (laughs) like you feel every punch every hit at the end 
and the movie just flopped like nobody saw it i mean absolutely nobody and it just makes me sad and the reason i wanted to bring it up is uh, chris stuckman on youtube actually did a video uh mainly pertaining to this movie and he brings up a good point it just sucks because we're at a time right now where these middle uh blockbusters that maybe aren't like the 200 million dollar superhero movies but also aren't the two million five million dollar indie movies these middle movies are just dying right now the um original concept movies made by decent sized directors with decent budgets are just dying right now and that's what happened with last door i think it was you know its budget wasn't huge but i think it was like 40 or 50 million and it did nowhere near that and it just makes me sad because we're just going to see less and less of those movies and you know i love them i I thought Last Duel was great. I want to see more of that shit. Not that I don't like the big <laughs> hero movies, but I want some variety too. Right. You know, I don't want huge hero movies and indie movies and that's it. So uh, anybody who's interested in that, check out Chris Stuckman's video. He goes into it a lot uh, more detailed and I completely yeah. agree with his point of view, but I wanted to put Last Duel on here just to highlight that. I love Stuckman. I always get Stuckmanized once or twice a week with his reviews. He doesn't do them as often as he used to for, you know, obvious reasons. He's, like, killing it right now at that Kickstarter. So, uh, yeah, shout-out Chris Duckman. Uh, so that leaves us to our number one. And for me, it's one of my all-time favorites. Uh, it was the very first episode of the podcast way back when, when I did this thing on my own. And that is, of course, True Romance, a film that also I've mentioned before that we are... Uh, Sort of recovering as part of the Tarantino Triple X, because that was obviously his uh, first major screenplay. The money he sold this uh, the script for, he made Reservoir Dogs with. But we'll get into that for that episode later on this year. But yeah, my number one true romance. It's a shame it didn't really get you know it didn't make as much money as it should have. But you know you, you can't really help the fact that the movie basically got yanked after the second week of it in the uh, theater. So. Even if you wanted to see it back in 93, you couldn't. Uh, it was pretty much that hard, too. That's how quickly it got yanked. So, yeah. Number one for me, True Romance. What be you, Corey? So, my number one is a movie... I say I love movies a lot. This is one I truly love. Like, you know, one of my favorite action movies ever. Like, I would say ever. Like, that I've ever watched. One of my favorite. I've watched it so many times. And it came out, you know, not super recent but fairly recently so my number one is dread i was blown away by that movie you know we saw it in theaters um i actually went back and saw it again uh several weeks later because i wanted to catch it in 3d again just because it was so beautiful in that 3d in the theaters one of the few movies that was actually worth going to see in 3d in my opinion and it's just such a shame like it just nobody cared nobody saw it it just got buried uh, I, I think the raid that came out around that time got a lot more coverage and a lot more notoriety than Dread even did. You know, a foreign movie. I'm, and I'm not shitting on that movie. Raid's great, too. It was on my list the other week. But, you know, it's just such a shame, Dread. It's just such a beautiful movie. Well done action. All the characters are well done for that type of movie. You know, Dread is just a kick-ass motherfucker just going through a whole building. I just love it. I rewatch it like every year. Uh, I just enjoy it, but just no one gives a shit about it. Unfortunately, we're never going to see a sequel. So 
Right. You know, what you going to do about it? But that's one of the like the bombs that just hurts. Like it just hurts me to watch that movie and know most people haven't seen it. Most people don't care. I'm never going to get a sequel to it, unfortunately. All right. Well, shall we get into uh, the uh, nitty gritty? Talk about some uh, nothing but trouble. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> don't sound too enthusiastic about it, Corey. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a fucking chore. I got like I got a gun to your head right now. I'd be like, talk about that movie, motherfucker. Do it. Alright. Here we go. So we get, you know, Ray Charles, the good life's playing over the Opening credits featuring various flyover shots of New York City. Some stock footage, I'm assuming. Although, did this very first shot that's going over the Brooklyn Bridge, the Brooklyn Bridge look familiar to you? No, nah, it didn't stand out to me. Uh, you know, rewatching. Oh, it did for me. And I looked it up, and it sure as shit is the exact same footage. It is the fucking opening scene for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Secret of the Ooze, which <laughs> came out later on the same fucking year as this movie. I was like, no goddamn way. So I looked it up on YouTube to see the opening scene, and sure enough, that same flyover shot, fucking full angle and all, I'm like, oh my god, that's fucking great. So yeah. Um, and then we get Chevy Chase, his uh, Chris Thorne, yeah. Was it Chris Thor? Thorn? Thorn. So yeah, we got Chevy Chase here. It's Chris Thorne coming in. He's uh arriving back at his penthouse where he's currently throwing a party, even though he's not there. Flaunting his money. He's like, you know, fucking, who's throwing a party? Doorman's like, you are, sir. And he's like, huh, am I having fun? It's like, this doorman Mike here, that's play this is Peter Ackroyd. This is the the infamous story writer who uh is Dan Ackwood's brother. Um, he unfortunately passed away last year, too. Huh. Um, Didn't know that. Look, hang on, I haven't pulled up. Yeah, back in November, he passed away, unfortunately. Um, it was caused by an untreated abdominal hernia. He had a, uh, septicemia. I, I, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not sure what the hell that means. Anyway, says here his death was first announced two weeks later after uh, November 6, 2021. Two weeks before his 66th birthday. And then it was announced on a title card on SNL. So, hey, the guy looks very familiar. He's got this face. Looks nothing like his brother. At least I don't think he does. Um, and I don't know if it's just... I, I thought this guy... I thought Peter was putting on like a... Scottish accent or, or or an Irish accent or something? Did you pick up on that too, or is it just me? No, you know? it, it sounded like he had like a Irish accent or something like that. But then I looked at his like older stuff because I'm not familiar with any of his work outside of this movie, and he sounds the same way in other films too. Like he's putting on this like cheap Irish accent or something like that. It's weird. Yeah, he definitely did. And you know what he almost reminded me of when I first? It was just like first glance i didn't know who he was and i was like is he he like reminds right. me of like a younger titus welliver 
like in this movie. I don't know why. Just like yes. at him. I, Dude, you're so right. Yes. That is what I thought. Wow. Initially. Like I was like, man, is that Titus Wallifer? I was like, I didn't know he was in this movie. And then I looked it up. I was like, no, that's that's Ackroy. That's his brother. I was like, oh, that's on I did not expect that, but yeah, he looked like it. He reminded me of him. <laughs> Younger Titus Wallifer, that's funny as shit. Uh so yeah, Chevy Chase apparently did not like the script, but uh Took the role anyway because he wanted to work with the, his friend Dan Aykroyd again. You know, I guess he couldn't get enough roles with him. Because this is like his fourth role he did with him. Did Caddyshack 2 together. They did Spies Like Us. And what the hell would the fourth movie be? Outside of this one, obviously. Um, Should have been more prepared, Ed. Fuck you. Uh, no. Um, ah, Three Amigos. Duh. What the I don't remember Dad Aykroyd and Three Amigos, but that's like me. He's not. He's he's not. I had the wrong actor's filmography pulled up in front of me. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, okay, let me pull up Aykroyd's. Uh, let's see here. What the fuck else would he have been in with? Spies Like Us. Caddyshack 2. Nothing But Trouble. Hmm. What what the fuck else? <laughs> yeah. Someone's probably screaming right now at their goddamn podcast like, it's so-and-so. I, I, I mean, I guess you want to count SNL? Sure, they were on SNL together. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. So And, and uh, he thought that they could improve the movie by improvising. Uh, later said that Ackroyd took a huge career hit in the movie uh, when the movie bombed. Because he had taken on so many roles, and I'm gonna really, be, I'm really gonna be driving that home throughout this episode because it sounds like the man really did do that. Like he was director, the writer, the actor, the producer. Like he had a lot on his plate, and he took a lot of things on his own. Like he took like he took a lot of problems on, like you know, head on, dove right into him. Didn't really think about like how much he was piling up on his plate at that moment. Like. Ackroyd just always struck me as like the the act first, think later type person who has like a heart of gold and, you know, is just trying to sincerely like help everybody. But in reality, he's just taking on too many, you know, roles, uh, you know, in the behind the scenes of this film. And uh, yeah, because he felt that he had a lot riding on this movie and he felt that. His, uh, I don't know, his name in Hollywood, I guess is the, I don't know, it's probably a better term than what I just said, but he was just had a lot riding on, you know, this movie. And, you know, if it bombed, where would that have put him, you know, in the order of, I get I, I don't know, I'm striving to find like a, pro- a proper way to describe this, so. I'm just gonna say fuck it and move on. It's about the movie. We're in the elevator being taken up to his penthouse. Uh, we're introduced to Taylor Negron's Fausto and his sister Renata. And, uh, yeah, these two. So, uh, Bertilla Damas, who plays uh, Renata, and Taylor spent a lot of time on uh, together, just on set, offset, pre production, rehearsal. 
they were just building their characters because they play brother and sister. Like they were just, I wouldn't call it method acting, but they were just, you know, trying to get more of a feel like, like they were, their appearance was, would be genuine. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, in fact, they actually wrote much of their dialogue together that, that Dan Aykroyd was just like, yeah, sounds great. You can do all that. That's I approve. So he let them improvise a little bit and not, not so much improvise as much as he let them write their own stuff, um, in between, in between scenes and whatnot. And, uh, Bertilla Damas, she's the only cast member to acknowledge that she did not get along with Chevy Chase while making the movie. Um, she said that Chevy was very nasty to her on surprise, set. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and although, yeah, and although Ackeray has publicly said that Chase and Demi Moore did not get along during production, Chase and Moore had never expressed their problems or dislike for each other publicly. So, yeah, there's a lot of, like, juvenile, immature, like, schoolyard finger-pointing and and stupid, you know, grudges being held behind the scenes of this movie. You know, you would think it'd be this simple little project, like, you've got this easy-peasy fucking horror comedy with a bunch of top-name talents in Hollywood. You would think that this would have been the exact opposite of what it was. You know what I mean? Yeah, you would think so. I mean, everybody had been around in Hollywood for a while. It's not like, you know... Anybody was fresh on the scene. I mean, obviously, everybody was super well known at this point. I mean, Demi Moore is coming off a ghost, for God's sakes. Like, she was like red hot. Like, yeah, Chevy Chase, like, you know, one of the most famous uh, comedy actors of the 80s, along with Dan Aykroyd. I mean, yeah, it's just crazy. Like, you have the star studded cast. It just blows my mind when you hear about this kind of stuff on set. You would think everybody would be a little bit more professional. Yeah, and like you said, Demi Moore coming off a ghost. Like this was her follow up to that goddamn movie. She followed a movie that got her like so much critical acclaim. To I'm Bobo, and I'm the devil. You know, like that kind yeah. of shit. And it's funny we talk about that because this is where she pops up in the movie for the first time. Uh, her name, uh, Diane Lightson. She's uh just this woman with her dog all white walks into the elevator and just like randomly starts breaking down it's just him it's just the two of them in the elevator Chevy Chase makes sure of that right away when he sees two people approaching like calling for the elevator to be held open and he just kind of like clicks the button real fast so it's you know just the two of them and instead of him you know trying to be you know his little playboy self she just kind of beats him to her punch and starts crying and he's just like kind of trying to calm her down and shit and uh yeah she she just completely switches her fucking you know tune when she sees this document that he has underneath of his arm then she takes it and like leaves with it and leaves Chris with uh, her espresso machine and bag of dog shit <laughs> yeah I think that's where like the writing the issues with the writing already start for me I'm like, it's just so random, A, that they both live in the same building. And I know they say she's new, but doesn't look like she just moved in. It looks like her apartment's fine, so she can't be that new. And the fact that, like, they had never seen each other at all. Or, and then just the fact that he happened to be holding that folder on the front that pertains to her. And, like, you know, 
her boyfriend or whatever that would be developing it that's where like the writing already i'm i'm like really that's how that's how it's all going to be introduced to the plot because i'll be honest when i was watching this when i was younger i had no fucking idea what the plot was i didn't even know why they were going that where they were going (laughs) like why they were driving i had no it was just a goofy movie with Dan Aykroyd and heavy yeah. makeup and the digital underground. That's, you know, essentially what it was. And at least for me a little bit, it was just also the uh, the whole behind the walls element, the sliding board and shit. I always thought yeah. that was cool. No, I so. did too. It, it, you know, I'm not saying you have to have a strong plot or like a tier writing to have a good, right. like I understand the whole right. draw is the house and all the crazy shit. But you do need to have at least some base level of halfway decent writing and characters. And I think that's where it already starts. So, you know, obviously I can follow stuff now as an adult watching this, but now I'm like, oh man, that's such a weird way to introduce like these characters and kind of get the plot rolling, in my opinion. Yeah. So she gets inside of her apartment and calls her client about this deal that uh, he went and did behind her back. So she needs to track him down Atlantic City to uh, this event that's going on down there. She needs to, uh, to get him to not go through with this like plan and uh, in turn ruin her firm's reputation. So uh, clearly obvious lawyer vibes worried about herself and the firm before anything else or her client's well-being, but whatever. I mean, we really don't know too much about what this is because they kind of just drop the whole scapegoat um, or, or, you know, just really early on. Like, once they get pulled over and the whole Valkyvania aspect gets brought into the movie, which is, like, really early on, this whole... AC deal, gotta go see this guy, yada yada. It just goes away. Never to be brought up or thought of again, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's just a reason for them to get uh, into the country and get pulled over. That's all it is. You can tell that's exactly what Ackroyd was thinking. Like, why are they going there? Okay, exactly. why are these rich people going there? That's, that's it. Yeah, that's what I meant when I, you know, when I used the term scapegoat. So they... uh. Diane decides to go up to Chris's party where uh, she formally introduces herself. And so she talks to him and asks if he's going to this particular event. And he says he isn't. And, you know, he wasn't planning on it. And he calls her client a fraud. And, and she says, well, she asks rather for a favor and says that she needs to borrow his car in the morning so she can talk some sense into him. Uh, like I said, she's a lawyer, if that wasn't obvious enough before. He then changes the tune and agrees to drive her down to Atlantic City in the morning. And this is when, like I said, Fausto and Ronaldo, they overhear this and invite themselves along as well. So, and Chevy Chase just goes with it, saying that they're Brazilianaires who have breakfast at 2 in the afternoon, so they won't be seeing them. Um, yeah, just really random. Like, it's just the whole thing. Uh, the whole setup is a big problem to me in this movie. It's just random. So like these two people met in an elevator and she's going to ask to borrow his car. Like I, it's just a very odd fucking thing. Like I would never meet somebody on an elevator and say, Hey, can I drive your car like two States over, you know, just for the day. It's like a, it's almost like a second grader wrote this screenplay with a crayon. Yeah, and then you know? like the Brazilian airs, 
Like, what the fuck do they have to do with anything? Like, yeah, Chevy Chase does stuff for him. Like, why do they want to go? Like, I, I don't know. Like, oh god, we're gonna be, we're gonna be talking about them soon. Um, yeah, it's just the whole setup. Although I do want to, I, I want to talk about this script. Now that we got a chance, or watch on my mind, I'd rather. So, Ackroyd offered the script to John Hughes to direct it. So we're kind of going back to the whole directing thing. Uh. Judge uh, Hughes uh, declined. He said that uh, ultimately that he directed his own scripts. That's it from no one else. Uh, he didn't like it. Well, it's not. It's not a matter of him him liking it or not. It's the fact that he said that he don't you know direct other people's material. That's something that he does. He he only directs his own screenplays or scripts rather. Uh, it's John Landis, the person he went and saw it after after. John Hughes turned it down, who also turned it down, disliking it, and uh, didn't take him long to say no at all. He kind of almost immediately said no to uh, doing this. But Hughes, Hughes is different though, because even though he didn't direct it, he received a special thanks in the credits at the end. Um, Because like I said, even though he declined, he, uh, he discovered that Dan Aykroyd was directing the movie because, like I said, busy man, taking on like 10 different roles when he's one person. So in doing this, he found out that he was directing the film by letting actors view their performances on monitors. Everyone had their own monitor. This is no joke, one set. And let them direct themselves for certain things. He immediately asked, he didn't really ask or advise, he just demanded pretty much, Ackroyd, stop doing that. He said that, you know, you got to be more hands-on as a director and get more control, or I'm sorry, get better control of your movie. Um, it's unclear if, you know, Hughes may have given Ackroyd a big hand in directing due to his credit, and there's no public records of him ever visiting the set, but Hughes... Uh, Worked with four cast members at this film at one point. Multiple projects with Chevy Chase and John Candy, ranging from, you know, Great Outdoors to Vacation. Also worked with Ackroyd on the Great Outdoors. You know, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. So I agree. Um, I absolutely agree with what he was saying because that's what the director does is direct the actors. Like if the director's not doing any of that shit, what's he doing? Like if he's not helping the actors dial in their performances and giving advice. I mean, that's like one of the biggest fucking things you're doing as a director. So if he was just literally saying, do what you want and watch the monitor, I think that's a recipe for disaster in most situations, I would say. Yeah. So the next morning, Chris is hung the fuck over. So he gives the building an associate. This is Mike. I'm referring to the keys to his Beamer to get to Diane so that she can get alone, get to her destination alone. So, I, I gotta, like, call attention to, uh, to to Mike the Doorman. He's fucking wearing this, like, Statue of Liberty t-shirt that says, I, I Heart New York. He's got suspenders over top this t-shirt. It kind of almost, like, looks like he kind of went to his party overnight as well and was just hanging out overnight, just getting toasty and you know had to work first thing the next morning and this is his attire he just rolled out of bed 
threw on some slacks, a goddamn I Love New York City t-shirt, and fucking suspenders. I love this, man. Um, so Diane comes out, looking all done up. So, you know, Chris, instead of backing out, he quickly takes back the keys and decides to go. Um, yeah, and they're trying to avoid Fausto and Lornada, but to no avail, because they, they get to the parking garage, like, exit. And they're at the top of the exit waiting, like, waving for him and shit like that. So, yeah, they get in. And I lo- I thought this bit was funny as shit, dude, when fucking, uh, uh, Taylor Negron, uh, Fausto is like, here, put this tape in. He's like, let's chunka. What the fuck? I don't believe this. <laughs> Should have known a Brazilianer never forgets. They're not coming with us, are they? Uh. Look at him, I can't say no. That's a nice beer. Chris! Chris, dude, I imagine that you did not think we'd be up so early. I have no idea. <laughs> Hi, Chris. Chris, where are we going? We're going to Atlantic City, Fausto. Get in the trunk. Good, good. We can see the Taj Mahal. I love it. <laughs> Here they call it the ninth wonder of the world. Oh, we have the fifth in South America, oh. in Rio. Uh, the Christ of Corcovado. Hi, I'm Renalda. Hola, yo soy Diana. Ay, pero es que habla español, yo no lo puedo creer. This is my brother, Fausto. Encantado. Chris, put this tape on. Let's chanca. The joke behind that is on the soundtrack that song La Chanka is is sung by uh the the actress here um uh fuck her name's slipping me uh Bertella Damas she sings La Chanka on the soundtrack and it's you know haha these are the jokes so um yeah man Taylor Negron we have to give this man his appreciation right now and talk about like. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. Uh, Taylor passed away uh, back in January of tw- 2015. Uh, Angels yeah, in the outfield. Cancer. Yeah, he passed a cancer. Angels in the outfield. Of all the fucking movies Taylor Negron's been in, you drop Angels in the outfield. <laughs> That's what I remember <laughs> from. Angels in the outfield. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! How about another one? Not the Bio-Dorm. pizza guy from Fast Times. Bio? No, I was about to say Bio. <laughs> fuck. Uh no. This motherfucker says Angels in the Outfield. He was loved Mi- them. He was Milo in Last Boy Scout. Oh, I mean, great. I remember that too. But uh, the first thing when I was rewatching this, I was like, oh yeah, it's a guy from Angels in the Outfield. That was literally the first thing that popped into my head. <laughs> <laughs> like better off dead in one crazy summer a couple of john cusack films from the 80s uh no god damn um i've always 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 been a fucking huge taylor negron fan in fact i wrote on my fucking facebook page the other day when i, when I was watching this for uh the episode and like every time he shows up in, in the movie i just smile and say to myself now it's a party Cause fucking Taylor Negron's here, that man, he just always had this way of just, I don't know, 
It's a rare breed. Not, not every actor could be like Taylor, but he was just one of a kind. Growing up, I, I saw him in so many, you know, films and shit, and he just always entertained me. And it's a bummer that he's no longer with us. It's an even bigger bummer that, you know, I, I, I took him for granted, and now I'm like... It's, my point being, it's, it's been like seven, eight years since he passed away, and like I, I'm just kind of like ignorant to that. I can't believe it's, you know, I'm just now realizing it's been that long. So, I don't know. Um, it's funny we mentioned Milo, last Boy Scout, which, hey man, next week, content overload week, and the first fucking episode kicking it off on Monday with an episode on last Boy Scout. Sweet. <laughs> it's like fucking five second silence and then sweet <laughs> alright I like it um god damn so Ronaldo and Fausto convince Chris to uh, take the back roads exit 326 to Valkenvania off the turnpike cause I don't think we mentioned this yet this film takes place in Jersey um well, I mentioned New York, and yeah, anyway. So, yeah, uh, and then you go to Valkavania, exit 329, like I said. Now, Valkavania is based on a real ghost town that's in uh, Centralia, Pennsylvania, which was uh, condemned back in 62 because of the coal fire that was underneath uh, the town, just like in this movie. In fact, it's like a carbon copy image. It's like... Lava and flames and ashes all building up underneath. And yeah. Um, I thought that was cool. No, in all seriousness, I, I didn't really realize that Valkyrie was based off an actual town that was just as fucked up as this town is in real life. So shout out to Centralia. I know we got no listeners out there, but you know. So yeah, the navigation system that I noticed here that Chris has in his car uh, it's shown as an ETAK or an ETAC system. So ETAC was an American company who introduced the uh, first digital map navigation system back in '85. However, other companies had been working on analog systems, and then by '90, the first GPS systems were introduced by Mitsubishi Electric and Pioneer. The system shown in this film was not a GPS system; it works on stored maps and dead reckoning. So basically, this is basically working off of uh, preloaded material, not material, but it's preloaded content, you know, like the maps and everything. So you can't like pull up a, a random, you know, report or a map or whatever. You can't do live traffic because there's no GPS. Even if it was GPS, you fucking couldn't do that stuff back in 1990 anyway. So this is where he runs the stop sign, which I don't know. It's just a weird looking stop sign. I mean, it's, it's red. It's, it's it's shaped like an octagon. It says stop, but it's got like these like it's surrounded by like these lights. Did you notice that? Like these turned out bulbs or something like that that was stuck. Yeah, to it. it had uh, weird lights on it and like a like ref, like a yeah, reflector. it was like weird reflectors. And in Chevy Chase's defense for running this, it it almost looked like the road was just kind of bearing around. It didn't even necessarily look like a turn in the movie. Almost like. It, it almost looked like that's just the way the road was going, and you didn't necessarily even have to stop. So I will say, I don't. There's a reason for that. Yeah, I mean, I don't. 
you're gonna i'll get to it i don't know much about this movie but just watching it i was like man i don't blame Uh, i might have ran that stop sign as well no this was a uh actual you know backlot set that was used for westerns such as high noon and shit so what they ended up doing was uh adding pavement to the dirt road and drawing a yellow line (laughs) that was it so it looks cheap and thrown together it's because it was so props to you for pointing that one out um so yeah, he runs the stop sign, which leads to the chase between him and this police officer, who we don't see, yet at least. Uh, and as many times as I've seen this movie, this was the first time watching it that I noticed that while he's like trying to outrun this cop, fucking Ronaldo, Fausto, and uh, Diane are having the picnic. They're eating all the food out of the picnic basket and shit and passing food around and enjoying it and stuff. Meanwhile, Chris is just like trying to avoid, you know, whatever, just to get away from this cop. But it's, it's just not happening, dude. But I've never noticed before. They're all fucking just enjoying their picnic while this high-speed chase is going on. It's, fun, it's funny as shit, actually. I got a good laugh out of that watching. I was just like, you've got to be shitting me. Um, And then we see Fausto, he's like, you know, putting pressure on Chris. He's like, come on, you've got a BMW. Act like it, you know. And then we, we see this cop hit the fucking NOS button like he's fucking Dominic Toretto. And then there, there's the, the whole flipping switches that sets up, like, blockades and all the, all the surroundings and shit. And they're chased through this industrial part of town. And everything eventually, like... Oh, and, and eventually they're, they're caught... When there's another cop blocking their path. And, uh, yeah, the cop turns out... <clears throat> the cop chasing that we see is uh, Gus Polinski, the polka king of the Midwest. And it's, you know, John Candy himself playing Deputy Dennis Valkenheiser. Who escorts the car to the to the Reeve, which is the local justice on the peace, or of the peace, after failing to uh, take a bribe that he initially offers him. Um... I have in my notes here, discuss Dean Cundy. So I'm going to do just that. Did you know that Dean Cundy shot this movie? Do you know who Dean Cundy is? Uh, I mean, I know he's like a big uh, cinematographer, but uh, no, I didn't know that he had shot this movie. I had no idea he was even like involved in this. That just blows my mind. Yeah. I mean, like the, some of the biggest the like, movies know. ever, like <laughs> Jurassic Park. Like, I mean, yeah, that's crazy. Dean, like, all three Bad to the Future movies, which, by the way, I think sometime this summer, like, and again, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it until we have our little meeting together and shit, but, like, I really want to start covering the uh, Bad to the Future movies, you know? Not, like, over a three-week period. Like, I always want to do the first one, obviously, and then, like, you know, maybe this holiday season or sometime sooner rather than later, get to the second one, and then maybe I can finally get the willpower to sit down and watch the third one for my first time and talk about it for an hour and a half or, or whatever. Have you never seen the third one? I famously have been on record many times saying that I've never seen Bat to the Future Part 3. Yeah. Yeah, it's I good. I mean, you know, is it as good as the first two? No. But compared to a lot of other movies, it's still good. 
Yeah, it, it it's definitely not the finest of the right. franchise, but I, it's still a fun movie, entertaining. And then I've, I cannot mention Dean Cundy's name without mentioning the original Halloween. And not only that, he came back and did Halloween 2. He did Halloween 3. That was it, but still, he did the first three Halloweens. Uh, he was a big Carpenter regular. The thing... He did Escape from uh, New York, didn't he? A lot he? of his older... Escape from yeah. New York. Um, you know, D- Dean Cundy oversaw the restoration process for the first three movies when uh, the Scream Factory put out last Halloween season when they did uh, the deluxe editions of all three... or All, all five, rather. The first five. Uh, 4K. Um, the first three movies were Overwatch. Or, or, or Cundy, rather... Uh, oversaw the whole process so got a stamp of approval and finally last but not least Dean Cundy cannot mention his name without saying two words Jurassic Park say what you will about the franchise I know all of us collectively here at the podcast have many scattered thoughts and opinions we just talked about it on the viewer cast last week for Christ's sake with the whole Dominion name uh, news drop but uh yeah man the original Jurassic Park was shot by Dean Cundy. And that is a beautiful movie. Beautiful looking movie. Yeah, agreed. Had to give uh, that man a spotlight. And still to this day, it just, it, I, I can't believe he shot this. <laughs> and, I, and not really a knock. Because as, as legendary as Cundy's career is, he's had some other... like. Let me just go down some of these films that we haven't talked about yet you know of course we talked about the, we talked about the carpenter movies and everything halloween then he did rock and roll high school he shot the um the the, the, the sci-fi horror movie without warning so he did a lot of oh, the fog god the fog that's coming next week as well during our content overload week for fog day april 21st mark that down um Psycho 2, DC Cab, Bat to the Future, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and that movie, I can only imagine how hard that movie must have been, you know, for any any DP for that matter, because you gotta, like, consider the animation that's good, that they uh, actually just incorporated with the, you know, actual stock footage that he shot, you know, it, 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 Definitely had his challenges, his tasks. Oh, I didn't know that Dean shot the Flintstones movie back in '94. <laughs> but uh, I mean, he's done a shitload. But unfortunately, he has. Unfortunately, his uh, career hasn't been so hot the last decade or two. Um, hey, didn't he do like he Jack directed, and Jill or something like that? He shot. He 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 uh, shot Jack and Jill. Yeah, and then he he shot. Home again, that Denise, Denise, that uh, Reese Witherspoon romantic comedy from like five or six years ago, and that's pretty much it. Um, he did some Anastasia direct the t- direct for for TV made movie or something like that. Anyway, point being, Dino hasn't been as active as he used to be. If you know what I'm saying, yeah. So. And that's unfortunate. He's definitely one of my top three all-time favorite cinematographers. So the He's more a legend. work, the better. Yeah. He's still got a lot in him. He is a legend, absolutely. So, yeah. Um, 
So yeah, we're in uh, Valkovania. See a bunch of metal sculptures, steel drawbridge, various random random decorations. So fifties uh, music signs informing us that no cussing allowed. So they eventually arrive at this mansion. It's like uh, Valkenheiser Salvage, where they're taken inside to the courthouse, where they're introduced to the Honorable Judge Alvin Valkenheiser. May I have your IDs, everyone, please? I already have yours, Mr. Thorne. Thank you. Thank you. These trials usually last only a couple minutes. Revolving District Court for the Village and Shire of Alkenvania is now in order. The Honorable Reeve Alvin Vulcanizer presides. Dennis, give me their licenses, ID, toll tickets, report cards, notes from the teacher. There you go, Judge. Traffic violation. Contravention of Village Bylaw 23, failing in the execution of a full stop at a place so marked, I recommend fine bond and release. <laughs> what else you want to do for them? Bake them a pie? Oh. Who's Christopher Lawrence Thorne? That's me, Your Honor. Thorne Financial Publishing, Water Street, New York. Okay. Banker? No, no, no banker, no. Financial publishing. Thorns Weekly? Okay, banker. Oh, here. Well, look at this. Passports. I will have you know that my brother, Fausto, and I enjoy diplomatic immunity in this country. Okay, well, uh, and you are the Fausto and Rinalda Squirini... Squeery, she's, 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 she's we, she's we, friends of the bride. Yeah, that's right, we all want to get married. No, sir, no wedding, moving violation, failure to stop. Let's just be quiet and let him do his little thing and we'll be on our way. Oh, I will let you be on your way and oh, when you go, the cat's eyes will spin! Now listen! Okay, we'll listen. Hey, hey, ho, ha, ho! <laughs> hula, hula, hula! The bula, bula, bula! Look who's got the front seats of the Mexican hat dance now! Just like a bunch of spiders in a birthday cake! You might be interested to know that you are not under the jurisdiction of just any old fishing license dispenser and stamp pad jockey. We've always been set to deal with the offenders once and for all at their first appearance. Quick as something to a ten-year-old goose. Congratulations. I'm glad to know things are running smoothly for you. Put out that dog rocket! Oh, sir, sorry. In 1796, my forefathers established this seat after the tenants of the old Shire Charter. Shire Charter? Excuse me, sir, that's pre-Magna Carta. I mean, serfdom and fiefdom stuff. Very good, young lady. <laughs> you know, you and I ought to spend a little more time together. Well, I'd, I'd like that. Would you? Well, and more on how they packed me off to Farmers Mechanics University in Gracefield, Ohio for my engineering degree. <laughs> and how I fought the Germans in World War I later. But for now... Later? Wait, ho, 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 no later. 
Wait a minute, what is this shit? Sir, no cussing in court. We don't want to hear the story of your life. We just want to pay the ticket and get the hell out of here. I'm sorry, Judge. Well, look at him. He's going on and on. This court herewith binds you over for a further appearance to be held at 4 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. We shall deem for the public and common good that you be confined herein. So for now... Good night, Harry! Oh, man, do you want to start this conversation on the judge or should I? Uh, I mean, I'll just start. For me, this is where the movie shines the most is like inside the actual mansion, like just the production design and the way things move. Because like when he first is coming out, like his desk starts coming out and it plays music and then the thing lifts up and then like he's on like, well, he's kind of hidden at the beginning. You can't really see him uh, because there's like books in the way. But then he's like on this like uh, automated chair that like lowers down and moves around to me like that's the biggest strong suit of this film is just like the work they put into the effects and like the sets and all this stuff but yeah just the introduction you know like he he starts out quiet and then you know you're thinking he's just like old and senile and then as soon as they start giving him lip then it's like yeah now you see the real judge he starts biting their heads off you mentioned the uh, the, the set design and everything, all that stuff. So, the studio actually... Okay, so back up. Not the studio. They were actually spending money from the budget at, like, appliance shops, appliance stores, and and, and, and places all, all over, and buying... Excuse me. And buying them all up in bulk. And then bringing them back and, you know, aging them up and using them as part of the set because you had the whole junkyard thing and the house itself because, it, you know kind of looks like a bunch of hoarders living there. Um, and so once the studio caught wind of this, they put a, you know, they they were quick to pump the brakes on that and be like, they shot that shit down. And so what they ended up doing was there was this, uh, they found this guy who had all this stuff in like bulk. Like, I guess he was a fellow hoarder himself. And, you know, he just... They happily took all the stuff off his hands and used it for here. Yeah, some guy in the... Where the hell was it? I read that they found him. I want to say Vermont or something like that. They found this dude who just happened to have like... He was like an industrial farmer or something like that. I think I read. And uh, yeah, he ended up just giving them all the, uh, the stuff they need. He happened to have it all, so... I feel like though, rather the the house itself. I feel like I've seen it before, like in an older production or an old movie or something. Like it sort of has the same design and layout as the uh, the Tales from the Crypt house from the HBO series. Uh, I know it's not the same house, but it kind of looks like that. I, and it's funny too because the other thing that when I look at this mansion, it reminds me of actually comes from an episode of Tales from the Crypt where like this like frat house, like this like fraternity and, and, and this, uh, of these, these guys, uh, this initiation of sending people into this old haunted house that looks just like this. And they, and they, and the, the people that were sending in, they got to last like, like 10 minutes in the house or some bullshit like that. I haven't seen the episode in forever. Uh, but anyway, the house looks just like that. That's what it reminds me of. So, um, <laughs> we got this bit here. The judge can't pronounce Fausto's last name, <laughs> then thinks that they're there for a wedding. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Uh, what else? Uh, then he just suddenly snaps before breaking into random tangent. Like, hula, 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 and something, something, something. It's like, what the fuck is going on now? Uh, Chevy goes to light up a stogie and eventually flips out when uh, the judge continues to go on and on and on and mentions postponing to uh, the next day. Then um, Valerie Bromfield's character, Miss Perda, is never addressed by her name. She's the woman here at the shotgun who's like, young man, there's no smoking in here. And then she's like, you know, she points out that there's no cussing either. She's never mentioned by name, but in the, in the credits, her name is Miss Perda. And uh, at one point in the entire movie, no, I'm sorry, not one point in this entire movie is, is, is her name referenced. She's called Constable by Judge and uh, Cousin by Dennis, John Candy's character. So, speaking of her role, that character, Dan Aykroyd offered the role originally to fellow Second City colleague Catherine O'Hara. Come on, Catherine O'Hara. Yeah, I can see her in that. I can see her doing that. Kevin McAllister's mother. Absolutely, me too. Uh, But she strongly considered the role uh, because she wanted to reunite with John Candy as they just finished three films in 1990 alone, including, you know, Home Alone. Uh, but then she wanted to take a small break for uh, a year from acting. So she ended up doing that. So, yeah, after this like outburst from Chevy Chase uh, in front of the judge, he hits this button or pulls this lever and they all drop down into this fucking toy pit. Um, and then the judge gets into it with Dennis while backing into the wall. Because, like, Dennis has a heart, sort of, and he's kind of, like, showing... Yeah, he's, like, reasonable, uh, essentially. Like, he, he's, like, the only reasonable character, probably, in this movie. He's, like, you know, they only were speeding. Why are we keeping him, pretty much, yeah. you know? Exactly. But Judge wants no part of it. He don't want to hear a goddamn thing. He tells him to go suck a bug. And anyway, he goes. So then we cut to Daniel Baldwin and company getting popped for doing 78 I completely 50. forgot he was in this uh, movie Baldwin dude you ain't kidding oh man I was like oh one of these fucking Baldwins are in this movie that's right so yeah him and his group it's like his little buddy and these two women all doing cocaine and shit then uh Dennis notices the alcohol and blow has him step out gets a gun pulled on him but Dennis's gun's bigger so Again, same display, uh, like earlier. Forces him to go back with him to the uh, the judge. Um, and yeah, I just have here my notes here. This is more of a personal note, and not one that I looked up anywhere because it's pretty obvious. Uh, I wrote Dennis Ball. Dennis Daniel Baldwin is playing a variation of his actual self. Note all the drugs and paraphernalia. Um. Oh, yeah, and then fucking dead uh, Ackroyd. Not Ackroyd, I'm sorry. Candy, uh, Dennis. He has uh, Daniel Baldwin go to the back of his car, and he's got this old, like, thrown-together fucking uh, breathalyzer in his trunk. <laughs> Takes up the whole space. Um, so, uh, yeah, like I said, they're taken to the judge, and immediately, you know, they're sentenced to death because these people are just not they're just incoherent laughing at everything they think everything's a joke 
Yeah, the and one so guy, he, uh, you know, he said a line that stood out. It wasn't Baldwin, but it was the other male passenger. I don't even know if his character has any. Yeah, I know. I, he's just like laughing. And then he's like, I plead the fifth. I'm in the fifth dimension. Like, I just love that line. It just made me giggle. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like such a stupid fucking lie, but like they're just standing there laughing. The like, they're just oblivious <laughs> to what's fucking happening. Right. Oh, it's funny. Uh, so yeah, the, the judge, uh, death by Mr. Bone Stripper. We are introduced to Mr. Bone Stripper. Who, uh, you know, it's a roller coaster. It goes around and uh, just sends them down this little conveyor belt that just eats them alive, strips their bone from their, their flesh from their bones, and spits it out to a fucking target painted on a goddamn wall. Yeah, the whole um, set is just crazy here. Like the little roller coaster, you know, that they obviously, I'm sure they just took a roller coaster and fitted it to their needs but they built this thing up and then the bone stripper just looks like so badass with like all the pistons and it's like a demonic car wash pretty much like it's just got like all the metal pistons and the spinny chains and the red lights and the big fucking engines next to it with fire coming out of it yeah like that's the part of this movie i always remember just like that part the bone stripper and like the conveyor belt floor like that's the stuff that always uh, sticks out to me with this movie the Bone Stripper ride was actually a used roller coaster that they bought for fifteen grand and redesigned for the movie to go out of the back and into the man uh, to go out of the back of the mansion and into the metal teeth of the Bone Stripper itself. So yeah, this fucking concoction has its own theme song, and I am fucking here for it. Uh, the target on the fence, like I said, it's it's just funny shit nice touch this is where we get the perfect blend of horror comedy like i think everything about this bone stripper thing or this bone stripper gag works that's just my personal take how do you feel about the bone stripper i agree i think it's one of the best parts of the movie uh honestly i think it's where the film actually strikes a good balance uh, because in a lot of other parts it's it's not really a funny comedy and then it's not really scary at all but I think this one has a good uh, blend, essentially. Like, I could easily see this being in, like, another horror comedy type movie. And I, I think it's very memorable. I think, like, these are the ideas Ackroyd probably had in his head. And the rest of the script just kind of, I think, fell around this, essentially, is what I'm saying. I think th- these are the seeds that he had. And I think, it, you know, they work out pretty well. Right. Okay. Um,. Oh, yes, here we go. Supper time. Welcome to supper. Welcome to supper. (laughs) Yeah, welcome to supper. (laughs) He just goes down from the fucking ceiling on this like wheelchair that's strapped down like I said on this platform and he comes all the way down and then he just looks around and goes welcome to supper it's fucking hilarious <laughs> um and then like he puts this fucking gas nozzle on this like warm can of Hawaiian punch and he's like how about a nice Hawaiian punch how about a nice Hawaiian punch and they start passing it yeah. around 
Chevy Chase um, has one of his uh, better lines in the movies. Like after a hard day at work, a nice warm glass of a uh, Hawaiian punch, you know, just the sarcastic shit you expect from Chevy Chase. Like some of it works in the movie, a couple of spots. I think this is one. Yeah, it's so much about the scene to love and appreciate. Like, uh, fucking Ackroyd's leg just randomly kicks outward as he's, you know, about to reach the floor. Um, we, of course, we get the various food articles. We get the uh, food items, the ant on the log, um, the fucking train. Let's talk about this train. So, yeah, this goddamn train. Where did my note go for this train here? Because it's got, um, yeah, the... The production designer told Dan Aykroyd about a restaurant that his grandpa took him to that uh, gives your food from a model train on the table. And he loved it. Aykroyd loved it and spent twenty five grand to remove a part of the table that they already had in there to replace it out with this like circular, you know, train that just goes around and around and around. Yeah, it's crazy. And I remember watching this as a kid, and I thought that was the fucking coolest thing I have ever seen. Like, I wanted a model train that would bring me condiments and fixings. Like, you know, that's the other thing is this scene that I always remember is the hot dogs. And obviously, you know, the gross hot dogs, but just the condiments. I was like, I want that in my life. I want a train or something to bring me condiments. (laughs) Right. it, It. it, it's cool like i mean they have like the modern roller coaster restaurants now at like theme parks where like your food comes out on like metal rails and rides down the roller coaster thing you know yeah so why that. not have something like this like the fucking condiment train from hell you know why not it's pretty wild we find out that the judge hates bankers and never lets them go after chris continuously tries to correcting him saying that he's a financial publisher He's holding them there as retribution for a coal deal, which the Valkenheiser family blames for their poverty. Basically, he's holding a grudge for a deal going wrong back in the day. So everyone, like I said before on this, like they hated working with Chevy. Loved Ackroyd, but felt polar opposites when it came to Chevy Chase whose ego is all over the set, apparently, and was also rumored to be paid roughly three times more than Dan Aykroyd, which I, I can believe. He's the, he's the lead star. He's top build. He was phoning in his performance and doing the bare minimum while everyone was working together to help Aykroyd achieve his dream. Aykroyd continued to defend him, even though that uh, he said that he helped him complete the movie and re- remain close friends after the film's re- after the film's release. The crew was furious at Chase's treatment of Ackroyd, which one crew member even threatened to drop it, drop a brick on Chevy Chase's head if he ever spoke to him like that again. Now, here's the thing. I grew up watching Chevy Chase. I can literally tell you since I was like four or five years old, Chevy Chase has just been in my life. Like the actor, the man, the myth, the legend. Now, after, you know, the last couple decades now and his careers you know obviously went into you know scarce hey buddy it's time to retire land a lot of stuff's come out and Chevy Chase I feel like when the whole me too thing started not that I'm against me too I am not at all so do not misquote me I am fully supportive of the me too movement however this this whole 
illusion or whatever. Because I still have yet to see, like, you know, just evidence of backing people up. They're all just coming out of the woodwork saying that Chevy Chase is this and he's that. And he's just an arrogant piece of shit, which, you know, he could be a lot of things. But what I'm getting at is, God damn it, I grew up with this man. And until he does something super, I shouldn't even word it like that. Because, you know, either way, I'm going to piss somebody off with this statement. But what I was getting at is, you know, don't take that childhood away from me. You know, don't do that to me. I'm, I'm being selfish right now. I'll be the first to admit. But again, like I, I grew up watching this man's work. He has entertained me since I was a little boy. And to hear these stories now, you know, that just, just paints a whole different spotlight on him behind the scenes. I don't see it. I just, I, maybe I just can't see it. Maybe because I'm just so used to him being his funny, egotistical self that, you know, you don't see too many videos of Chevy Chase flipping out on anyone at all. So I just can't really see how he's all of these things behind the scenes. You, you, you dig? You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I just think he seems like a, uh, I don't know if you want to use the word arrogant or confident. I, I don't know. He just seems like he has an air about him that maybe rubs people the wrong way. Now, is he really as much of a dick as a lot of people say? I have no idea. I've never met the man. I've never been on a movie shoot in my life. Right. I mean, you hear about a lot, so I tend to believe there's something there that you just hear so much about it. But, you know, it could also be dogpiling. Uh, you know, that. so where am I to say? I mean, I don't judge him harshly. You know, I, I still enjoy his performances and things like that, whether he gets along with cast or not. I mean, he has a reputation for not being the most encouraging to maybe new actors or helping out uh, fellow people. But, you know, you don't, we don't all know his life. Maybe he's got other shit going on, you know? So I would just say, enjoy the movie. You know, that's the way I look at it. Like I let his performance stand on its own. Is this a good movie that he's in? Or is this a good Chevy Chase performance? No, not really. But, you know, I would just say whatever he's in, just let his performance stand on its own. Yeah, Ackroyd also listened to crew members and enacted on all the crazy ideas that they threw at him. Like, apparently, the Bone Stripper roller coaster uh, from that to the Valkenheiser mansion itself and the dinner table with the built-in model train that we mentioned a few minutes ago. Everything, you know, a lot of, not everything, but rather most of the things, uh, or a lot of things in general were just, like, ideas. Because, again, man's busy. It's not like he had much time to sit down and, you know concoct ideas on paper so I'm sure a lot of people came to him with ideas and he just took them and there were some of them not all of them but and, and and just you know added his little take to it and made sure that it followed this film and uh yeah away we go but yeah overall the crew they had a blast making the movie as grotesquely absurd as that sounds like they did it's also a it also caused the film to go over budget like i mentioned five million that sent the warner brothers execs in a wind world and they just you know they they were pleading for Ackroyd to you know rein things in then uh but didn't act themselves because they were already distracted with another development that uh another troubled production that they were dealing with that film that I was talking about that they swapped production or our release dates with, The Bonfire of the Vanities. 
So speaking of the bonfire, the vanities, Tom ha- Tom Holland, Tom Hanks visited the set of the film. Uh, this, but uh, nothing but trouble. Which uh, they, they, why not? They shot at the same soundstage right across from one another. It was like a bunch of high school buddies in class down across the hall from one another. Uh, you just you know came in and said hey hi hello and shit like that and eventually I'll be in these movies. I'm sure, maybe, we'll see. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah, God. Time for hot dogs. And Dan Aykroyd's penis for a nose, which I cannot fucking believe made it into a PG-13 movie to this very day. Yeah, me neither. I mean, there's only a couple scenes where it's like blatantly obvious that it's a penis, because in other scenes... It's in it a lot but, more than I remember. Yeah, there's... Several scenes where I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a penis. And other scenes, it's not as noticeable. So maybe that's how they squeak by. But yeah, I mean, it's definitely what they were doing. I'm surprised no one noticed either. Yeah. So there's an earthquake of sorts that, you know, they blame on the mine fire below or the coal fires. Uh, then Fausto and Ronaldo, they, they, they can't take it no more. And then uh, the judge intentionally flicks a pickle from the. The, the train to uh, Fausto's face and he just fucking gets up and the two of them hand in hand dive out the window to make a I run love for what, it. I love what uh, Fausto says. He's like, we're not staying where there's a train that flicks a pickle at my sister. Like, that's the last straw. Like, he's like, we were cool with the other shit, <laughs> but the pickle flicking at us from the train is like right. the fucking end. We got to get out of here now. This is where we draw the line in the goddamn sand. Is the pickle in the face? <laughs> uh, the pickle choo-choo. So Aldona. Oh God, Aldona. I forgot. We're also introduced to Aldona. This is Chevy Chase's. I'm sorry. This is John Ackroyd. John Ackroyd. <laughs> Jesus Christ. John Ackroyd. The star power in this movie. So this is John Candy's second character in this movie he's Dennis the great grandson of Judge Alvin Valkenheimer and then he's Eldona his sister wow so she's mute because the judge is you know doesn't he wastes no time letting us and Chevy Chase know I forgot the actual quip where he's saying something like obviously being a kiss ass and he's just like, oh yeah, she's mute. So, um, anyway, she captures Diane and Chris while this is going on. Fausto and uh, his sister, they have to swim through this disgusting tar black-esque shit. It's, yeah, shit. They got to swim through this shit. Let's go back. There's this fucking disgusting like moat that surrounds the joint that they gotta go through. But they do so. They're stopped by Dennis, uh, who like applauds them and then eventually lets them go after they promom- they they promise to set them up this Brazilian vacation. And uh that's it. That's the last we're gonna see until the fucking very, very, very end yeah. scene. That's that that's Dennis. He just randomly disappears. I, he just deuces the fuck out. Well, Dennis out. is in a couple more scenes in the movie. Uh, but uh, the brother and sister, 
It's just crazy to me. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you're right. That's right. I forgot. He's he in is. a couple he more is. scenes. I, for whatever reason, was thinking he is because he lets them go. We'll get to it. But yeah, yeah he, he he's in a couple more scenes. But um, you know, just the Brazilian air is like it's just crazy because like essentially they don't need to be in the movie really when you think about it. Like they come along on the trip, but then they just escape and you never really see them again. I guess. I guess the only thing you could right. really say is they're the reason that John Candy or Dennis's character lets Chevy and Demi Moore out. But that's an easy thing you can fix in the writing. So I don't know. I don't understand. Like rewatching this, I completely forgot that they just leave the movie like early on. There's a lot of things they can fix in the writing, but yeah, yeah, they do. And I never did. I never noticed that either. This is the first time I noticed like, Dennis's absence just suddenly, as abrupt as it is, like I never noticed it before. And this viewing, particularly, I did. And it stood out because I'm like, where the fuck did Dennis go? He just all of a sudden just dipped out of this movie and we're stuck to this mute character with uh, just nothing really going for her or him. So. Yeah, just odd shit. <clears throat> just odd, like all the way around. But. I don't know. It's just like you could cut him out and it, you wouldn't be missing anything in this movie, really. So Diane and Chris are in the room going over her plan once they get to, uh, if once, if they would have, hypothetically speaking, if they would have gotten to Atlantic City, what her plan would have been. Uh, while this is going on, the, the room that they're in, it's just layered with uh, old mail and papers. Diane gives up and starts kissing uh, Chris out of the blue before laying down in bed claiming he's nothing but trouble oh, oh, I better lie down oh you're nothing but trouble there it is there's that title being used in a sentence and yeah not a, not a whole lot to it just establishing you know uh, they're about to go through some shit you know uh, according to his autobiography that he wrote back in 2007, Chevy Chase, uh, the book is called I'm Chevy Chase and You're Not. He, uh, he said that he knew it would be the worst movie he'd ever been. Uh, but Dan Aykroyd... Uh, no, hang on. Here's the, ex- the exact quote. Uh, Before the script was finished, Chevy knew it would be the worst movie he would ever make. Dan Aykroyd mentions in the book... Demi was very demanding. Chevy was resistant to her demands. And, uh, yeah. So, anyway. The old portrait of John Candy as an old woman uh, appears with, like, red, like real eyes. Uh, it's that whole gimmick where someone stands behind the portrait and, and, and just kind of, like, masks themselves with the actual, you know, yeah, the, the canvas. Anyway, so they go down the hall after the doors open for him, and they uh, open up random doors to just random rooms like a fucking bat. Room full of just bats and shit. Uh, a solid brick wall and shit like that. So the walls, they're closing in and on the two of them. That old gimmick. But uh, Chris is able to get in the back room with the nick of time and pulls her in, or the attic rather. And they go up and it's just filled, the whole wall is just nothing but IDs. IDs and newspaper shits and the corpse of Jimmy Hoffa. No, no, I'm sorry, the uh, the ID. 
Chris finds Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, we found Jimmy. They're all bankers. We found Jimmy. He's in the Bone Stripper somewhere, I guess. They're all bankers. Yeah, eventually they find a couple of skeletons in the room with them. And uh, that's, that's, that's that. So, Aldona takes the BMW and dismantles it uh, for parts outside. And then we cut back to Chris and Diane. They're having a cigar together. Uh, before we hear Candy saying good luck. And uh, he opens up a random door for them that leads down a slide. As that scene I was mentioning earlier in the episode. The, the old slide that's obviously way too big for the actual house design itself. Because like they're going down this slide for a long ass time. In real life they would be going down like underground if this was a real slide. For as long as they're both sliding down this shit. Yeah. Yeah, it's like um, huge, but it's super cool. Like especially when you're younger, that's like your dream is your house to like have fucking slides that you go everywhere. So that's the same way uh, I always thought about it. I'm, you know, even though it doesn't make sense, I mean, really, none of this movie does, but it's just a neat thing, and you can tell they built like uh, all these slides for them to slide down. So it's pretty cool. What do you mean this movie made no sense to you? You just didn't understand it, bro. You didn't get it. You gotta sit down and watch it again. Yeah, I didn't get the high concept Dan Aykroyd diaper babies and fucking uh, Uh, judge with a dick nose. Oh, we'll get to him. Oh, we're getting to him. We got that out already. Um, But yeah, Demi ends up going outside right before she meets them too. And Chevy ends up down this like dead end. Because they split. At one point, the whole thing splits off. You can either go left, you can go right. So yeah, like I said, this is this is the shit he sees uh, the judge through this like little peephole or whatever. He sees the judge remove his hair, his nose, his fucking his leg, everything. And he, I like this line he says to himself before he goes to bed. Always was a good looking fella. <laughs> um, the outside, Diane finds the dismantled Beamer before finding Bobo. Bobo is the one who's uh, played by Dan Aykroyd and Lil Debel with, uh, they, they, they chase her. They're, they're both barred from going inside the house, they said. Uh, then she runs, but called by Aldona, who's about to toss Diane into a fire pit before they stop her because they want to play with her. And she passes out to end the scene. So, David B. Miller, does that name ring a bell to you? David B. Miller. It does not ring a bell to me at all. No. He's a makeup artist. He's a makeup artist for uh, a big name. He did the original Elm Street. He did what I call the worst Elm Street part five. So he's responsible for the worst Freddy makeup of the series. And he came back to help out for New Nightmare with K&B effects uh, industry. He did Friday the 13th Part 5. He did Dreamscape. He did Night of the Comet and Night of the Creeps. Uh, he helped Rick Baker out with Michael Jackson's Thriller. The list goes on. He's done an array of stuff. So he was in charge of the makeup effects in this movie. Uh, speaking of Dan Aykroyd and his uh, Bobo costume, uh, it took him an hour each day just to get it on and get him in. Um, and yes, it was one of those things where there was like a string, you just pull it. Anyway, I don't know. Anyway, so yeah, uh, um, 
like the zipper because eventually after you know after it took an hour for all this shit they eventually just made it easily accessible with just a zipper in the back and went down that route so um the judge is woken up by a call that speeders are caught and they're being brought in and this is when uh yeah, this is the point of the film where we've seen a lot. We've seen John Candy playing characters of both genders, a funhouse full of surprise rooms and a toy pit, a choo-choo train with condiments and finger food, one of the Baldwin brothers, a penis for a nose. There's a lot going on. But then the digital underground and a stupid young Tupac Shakur both show up just out of fucking nowhere and call the place a white man's heaven. So we get the courthouse scene where the judge leaves. Chris comes out of the wall of the bones and the and the, uh, the fucking like large ass hole in the wall that he just comes out and he sees an article of the events that led to where they currently are. When the judge appears looking for his pistol, that leads to the two get into a fight. Uh, when Chris uh, runs out and runs into Aldona, and uh, eventually is just. Uh, Forced to marry her. I'm not sure how I feel about that. He's got to marry the first woman. Uh, she has to marry the first man she touches. And apparently yeah, that's house rules. House rules, so, baby. That's what, that's what he says. House rules. <laughs> so we're at the uh, beginning of the digital underground court scene. And if it was an ambulance, you got a chance. If it's a hearse, you got to be worse. No. I fucked that line up. If it's if it was an ambulance, you got a chance. If it's a hearse, it's got to be worse. That's the line I wrote down. Uh, yeah. So mixed with Aldona getting dressed with Chris, forced to watch while we hear big girls don't cry playing uh, over the uh, the scene. Um, look, dude. Like I said at the top of this episode, harmless, goofy humor. I mean, at this point, if you're taking this movie seriously, you're doing it all wrong. And, and, and of course, it's going to be like your most hated film of the year. But this movie's just fun. We get stupid shit like this. And yeah, I'm sure it makes a lot of people, their eyes roll and shit like that. With this whole gimmick here with John Candy, you know, doing this whole strip tease bit. Uh, to Big Girls Don't Cry, an oldie song. But, you know... You motherfuckers wish, I'm sure, that John Candy was here today doing shit like this compared to all the other towns that are out there, these no-hack assholes trying to do shit and call it comedy. You know, this, yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm starting to sound like an old man. Um. So, yeah, this is when I mentioned, uh, yeah, we see Diane playing cards with Bobo and Lil' Debel, and it's at this point where I realized that Dennis is, this, this is the point I wrote down where, uh, I recognize Dennis is missing. And then uh, just, this, the film just starts suddenly shifting a lot of its focus on Demi Moore's character. And I wrote here that she has more screen time than either Dan Aykroyd or John Candy, but is credited fourth behind them with Chevy Chase even uh, say he was uh, saying technically her character is the main I think I miswrote this sentence down. The point is, she's, you know, like fourth build, and she's in this movie like a whole lot longer than a lot of these other people that are built, you know, above her, like Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase and shit like that. 
Yeah, they're just bigger names. I mean, you know, it, it's not like it's not like they're all built above her and they're like barely in the movie or anything. You know, she just has a little bit more screen time. But yeah, it is funny seeing her build like fourth. Yeah. And according to Dan Aykroyd, Demi Moore was fantastic to work with and a very knowledgeable uh, she was very knowledgeable in the filming process. The actress used her knowledge of film to give suggestions and ideas for shots and inserts that Dan used in the final film. Um, and then we get our same song performance from the Digital Underground. I came for the party to get naughty, get my rocks on, eat popcorn, watch you move your body to the pop song that I'm singing, ding-a-lingin', funky beats ringing, everybody swinging in the place as I kick the J's, easy watch style, R&B, mixing it with the hip-hop swing beat, champagne in my hand, it won't be long till I'm gone. It's just the same old song. It's just the freestyle. Meanwhile, we keep to be kicking. Sweat dripping. Girlies in the limo eating chicken. Oops, go get the grease on your pantyhose. I love you, Rover. Move over. I gotta blow my nose. Sneezing, but still I'm pleasing. All of Slimmies. Pull out my Jimmy. Time to get busy with a Jenny. If it's good and plenty, don't you know? There I go, there I go, there I go. But I don't go nowhere without my gym hat. What I'm rapping is if she's clapping, then I'm strapping because I'm smarter than that. And then, girlie, maybe we can get along. Cutie after cutie. It's just the same old song. Same song, a very, I'd argue this is probably the most popular song. We do it, or we used to do it every week for uh, shout outs. But yeah, uh, it's it's a song that was written and made for the soundtrack, or it was released for the soundtrack. I guess it was a B-side for... Uh, yeah, and I, I just love this whole scene. Like, it's just so ridiculous. Like, I just want to take this scene of, like, the digital underground playing and then the judge, like, up there playing his fucking piano... Like, I just want to take this scene and show it to people <laughs> just out of context and just have people. Because then you got uh, Chevy Chase, like, fucking chained up off to the side watching this shit happen. Like, I, I just want to take this scene and just, like, show people. Like, just people have no idea, probably never seen this movie, probably never heard of it. And just see what they say. Because obviously, everybody knows who Digital Underground is. The song is very popular. Everybody knows who Dan Aykroyd is. I think even with the makeup, you would recognize him. Chevy Chase, and you're like, what the fuck is this? Because that would probably be my reaction, like, watching it. It's just, like, so silly yeah. and fucking weird. And the other thing, I love Digital Underground. Like, at the beginning, like, their musicians, they get everything set up. And the people that don't play instruments or really do anything are just fucking kind of dancing. Because, like, what else are they going to do? Because there's, like, 20 people there. They, they're hype men. Yeah, they're, they're hype, hype men. men. A lot of these hip hop groups have them. Yeah, they're so they're men. just like the girls are just like dancing, and the guys are just like grooving. Like I don't know, I it's fucking hilarious. I I love this scene. And there's a video for it too. You ever seen the video for her same song? Yeah, yeah, I've seen the video. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I've 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 got some things to talk about in in uh you know ties to that. So I'll wait till uh the soundtrack section. Yeah, my 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 notes here, real quick about the scene itself, is that there's certain scenes like this one where Ackroyd just looks like he's having a blast, like the time of his life. But when the commentary track that, that tells a different tune, 
the Scream Factory disc that just came out last year that I let this is how you watched it. Uh, the commentary track, uh, he reveals that he was he was briefly hospitalized during production due to the overwhelming stress of directing and playing two large roles in the film. I believe it. I believe it. Then the judge asked the uh, group to stick around and act as witnesses for the upcoming wedding between his daughter, uh, yeah, uh, Aldona and Chris. Uh, after letting them go free, of course. Which Chris reluctantly, yeah, which Chris reluctantly goes through with after an uh, exchange for this uh, for his life. So yeah, he's pleading with the band to help him, but you know, to no avail. Band leaves without understanding him, and the judge furiously sentenced Chris to die via Mister Bone Stripper. So this machine breaks down right before he gets sent into it. Like he's just kind of like backpedaling backwards and like, yeah, it doesn't happen. He escapes. He's like, yeah, backpedaling to, because like the machine just randomly breaks down. It's just old shit gears and all just start falling apart. I guess the, uh, the power of the backpedal was just too much for it to handle. And, uh, he survived the bone stripper. So then we cut to the judge who's captured Diane and sends Bobo and uh, Debo away and we see the ground full of flames and burning underground coal from what the judge was saying earlier about the bank's uh, responsibilities for, you know, all this shit. A lot of finger pointing, like I mentioned before. Dan Aykroyd almost missed out on playing the role of Harry in uh, the film My Girl that came out the same year as this due to having to do more uh, edits on the film at the uh, same time. However, he finished everything in time by the end of 1990 and the film was, you know, served, was, um, not served, was, uh, secured for February. And he was able to then go and do this role. I think he came back from My Girl too. I haven't seen the My Girl films in a while. How about you? Have you? Not recently, but, you know, I've seen them several times. I mean, they're good, okay films for what they are. Uh, yeah, I think... In the sequel, he's only in like either the very beginning or very end because the sequel she like travels to like California or whatever. Oh, yeah, I think her is? name's okay. I never, I never seen. Yeah, the sequel. her name's like Theta or Theta or something like that. I think the character's name in it. Yeah, she travels, so like I think there's a few scenes where like Ackroyd's on the phone and stuff like that. So he's not in the sequel a whole lot, but yeah, I mean the movie's not bad. Like I remember my girl. It was a, it was a cute little slice of life growing up type movie. There was nothing wrong with it. So, yeah. Additionally, My Girl made a profit at the box office, which allowed Ackroyd to uh, briefly recover financially from the disastrous results of this film. And even when uh, his characters weren't on camera, again, this is all going back to how busy this man was, he was directing this film in heavy makeup. Like, he was dressed up as Bobo in the costume and shit, and like, throwing around orders trying to get the film done and stuff like that like you imagine him like dressed up as the judge or Bobo like directing this film with a straight face like or at least trying to have a straight face or something to that matter like it would be tougher this has to it would be tougher if he was in character like if he's like Bobo and he's like trying to direct him but he's talking like Bobo (laughs) like he's fucking Christian Bale method acting on set and shit yeah so, Diane's held down on this device that's going to split her in half if Chris doesn't appear within 10 seconds. 
He causes an explosion from a barrel that he rolls down with a flaming rag like it's a fucking Molotov cocktail. Diane's rescued and the two escape on a train. And even on the run, there's a ton of Chevy Chase joking and throwing quips out there that are clearly 80 yard in. And we see Bobo and Lil Debo crying and saying that, you know, Diane was great. Bye bye to her, yada yada. Um, and then they, they all arrive. I'm sorry. They go off the train to uh, play charades, trying to tell the uh, feds what happened. And it's Brian Doyle Murray and Raymond J. Berry, kids. Say hi. They tell them to, uh, they got to come with them to the place, uh, which, you know, they do. And they all arrive with a warrant. But instead of hanging, uh, instead of barging in, we see Diane offering to serve up the uh, warrant with Chris by her side. They go to the door. At first, he tries to pretend, uh, the judge, rather, and Eldonia, Eldona try to pretend like they don't know who Chris is. But then he tells them to turn around and surprise, the entire fucking police force and FBI apparently are all in on it. Or they're all in on, you know, the, 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 the judge's antics. I guess we can chalk this up as. Okay. <laughs> going on here? Who are you? Why are you bothering an old man? You're through, Judge. Oh, you kids better look out behind you. There's a bee's nest. Hi, Judge Allen! Evening, troopers! Can't go too far in this part of the world without running across my friend! Uh, when suddenly, boom, Deus Ex Earthquake Machina saves him from the fucking... Mayhem and the two make it out while the mansion and surrounding areas burn down to the ground. Then we cut back on Dennis, remember him, who's enjoying his beach getaway with Fausto and Ronaldo. And uh, yeah, it's been said here uh, that uh, Dan Aykroyd allegedly sent written letters of apology to the entire cast after discovering that the film was not financially successful at the box office. However, in a 2017 podcast, Bertilla Damas said that she's never heard of such a thing, and uh, she was surprised to hear that he apparently had done that. So, again, once I like I said before, finger pointing, he said, she said, yada yada. Seems like this film was made at a weird, awkward time when people were just not getting along and shit. So yeah, wrap this up. Back in New York, Chris sees the judge on television. Brandishing Chris's driver's license, announcing that he and his family plan to move back, move in with his new grandson-in-law. Because remember the whole gag, or him and Eldona got married, which causes Chris to break through the wall like a fucking Looney Tune. Um, I'm gonna watch a little TV. Numerous fire companies from New York, New Jersey, Ohio, and all neighboring states are barely able to handle a subterranean mine fire near the town of Valkenvania. Diane, you should see this. Our Susan Campost is on the scene. Roger, this cloud may have a silver lining. Geologists say the brief but intense heat from fissures 10 miles below have cooked the upper coal tailings into a fine medium-grade crude, over 50 million barrels. Wait, just, just one second, Roger. I see one of the village residents rummaging through the remains. 
Excuse me, sir, how do you feel now that you have lost everything? At least we all got out alive, of course. There's nothing left for us here now, so we're all planning to move in with my grandson-in-law. Oh, no. He lives in New York City. Oh, come on, what? No, what? See you soon, banker. No, <laughs> what? <laughs> no, you won't. Yeah, no one could come up with the proper ending for this movie, apparently. So they settled on what was underwhelming, but ultimately what it was. It was just a fucking figure of Chevy Chase breaking through a wall, which, funny enough, we get the same gag almost later on this year. No, last year, with Gremlins 2 had a kind of a gag like this involving the bat yeah, signal. Yeah, but the problem so, is that fits that movie well. The This whole thing, I don't... I mean, it doesn't bother me that much, but it, I just don't understand it. Like, it's just very odd for, like, the straight-laced, sarcastic character to bust through the fucking wall. Like, I don't know. It's just odd. Like, this movie right. has a weird ending. I forgot how fucking weird the ending is to this movie. Like, having the cops go back, and then the cops it's, are all friends. It's Like, bizarre. it's just weird. Like, it, it, you could definitely tell, even without me knowing anything about this movie, I could tell they didn't know how to end it. I could tell that he had no fucking ending, um, you know, basically set in stone. So, yeah, that's nothing but trouble. And uh, two more notes from Dan Aykroyd. He was interviewed back in 2010 about the film, obviously, for New Hampshire, Mag- New Hampshire Magazine. When asked about any regrets, he said, Well, the movie I directed, I wish I'd done better because I know it was a good serviceable comedy. It was called Nothing But Trouble. It just got it just got hit by the Gulf War and there was a Julia Roberts comedy and a Jodie Foster movie in the same marketplace and we were dead. But people watch it on DVD and they tell me that it, that, that, that they like it. So, that's that. Uh, and also on a radio interview with Sway Calloway, uh, Aykroyd says that he's very proud of the movie and that the judge is one of his all-time favorite characters. All right, let's go to box office receipts. In the operational funds box, we will deposit 250,000 American dollars. You take it out. We put more in. I want receipts. All right, so the film, like I mentioned before, didn't really have a premiere because Ackroyd tried throwing one, but no one showed up to the party. So anyway, the film came out on February 15th, 1991 from Warner Brothers. It opened up in 1,671 screens, opening up at $3.9 million. That was enough to break in at number 8 on the top 10. Second weekend, it dropped nearly 50% to $1.8 million at uh, 10th place, for those of you doing the math. Um, Total gross was 80. 84, they had wishes, $8.4 million <laughs> against a budget of 40 to $45 million. Blows my mind. $40 million. And this, you know, today you hear about movies that are budgeted $40 million, but this is back in 19-fucking-90, like 30 years ago, $40 million. Like, that's probably the equivalent to, like, a $100 million movie today, I would say. Almost. It just blows my fucking mind that they spent this much money on this movie and someone thought it was going to be successful. I think it was doomed from the start at that budget, honestly. 
I I I just I I tend to agree. Um, it's just I don't know. It didn't really have the backing that it deserved. Um, yeah, it's just a typical case of Warner Brothers not backing the product. That's all. So yeah, it's unfortunate. Like I mentioned, it went over budget. So that 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 forty five figure came from me. You know, saying that anyway. Let's talk about the uh, the critic. Critical reception, uh, in the means of taking our little weekly walk down the critics' corner to see what they all had to say. Alright, so the film's Rotten Tomatoes score is 13%. That's based on 24 reviews. The critical consensus says there's really something and nothing but trouble. No, I'm sorry. There's nothing good and nothing but trouble. A, a grotesque comedy that is more likely to make audiences ill than make them laugh. So it's got a meta score of 13 out of 100 based on 19 reviews and a cinema score of D+. Ebs. He famously hated this movie so much that he refused to write a review for it after giving it the uh, most emphatic thumbs down reviews ever on his At The Movies episode. On the show, Ebert said that when he went to the uh, weeknight showing of the film in 91, the film, the theater was almost abandoned except for him, a few lone adults, and several teenagers who were making loud, rude comments at the screen. He famously went over to the teens and asked them to be even louder so he didn't have to listen to the terrible movie anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I love Ebes. Yeah, man. Miss him. Uh, Nathan Rabin from uh, AV Club said Aykroyd here has lovingly, meticulously created a hideous, grotesque nightmare world nobody in their right mind would want to visit at the right, uh, yeah, visit the right, Jesus Christ, visit the first time around, let alone return to. IGM named this movie one of the, uh... Why would I even write that down here? So apparently IGN listed this as Dan Aykroyd's worst film. It was actually his only film. So why I would write that information on here? Because um, I'm assuming they meant director. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, maybe starring role. Uh, I don't know. Or maybe writing. I'm not sure. But I would argue Blues Brothers 2000 has a fucking thing to say about that as far as writing and oh, acting. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Peter Rayner from LA Times uh, said occasionally the talents of the cast burn through the haze of the misfires and remembered routines. Owen Lieberman from EW Entertainment Weekly said, uh, well, he gave it an F rating and called it sheer hell. That was it. Uh, Vanity said the story turns into an extended maze with Chevy Chase and Demi Moore as their principal Nintendo eyes targets running through one tepid peril after another while mouthing banal wisecracks. There's that word again, banal. Um, and yeah, 
we get it. It was panned. Okay, it's a cult classic. Uh, it's, there's still people to this day that don't get this movie, but whatever. Um, all right, let's talk about the music in this movie, shall we? Music from the motion picture. All right, so the soundtrack was released about a month after the film came out. The only leading single off of it was same song from Digital Underground. Uh, we got the Ray Charles song, The Good Life, from the... Uh, Opening number of the movie when it kicks off, same song. We got uh, Nick Scotty doing "Get Over It." I'm sorry, doing "Get Over." Big girls don't cry. Tie the knot from Digital Underground. The Bone Stripper theme song. If there's any reason to get this soundtrack, gang, it's because that's where you'll find the theme song for the Bone Stripper. Uh, Lachanka, and I Mean I Love You from Hank Williams Jr. Um, yeah, so, same song, this video, watch it today, didn't even know I had a video. Uh, what the fuck is Dan Aykroyd doing in this video? He's like, trying so hard to be the whitest, most down-to-earth, like, hip actor, comedian, whatever you want to call him, but, like, he's just trying to fit in. He's wearing a base, uh, backwards baseball cap and a denim jacket at one part. He does the whole bit where he's crossing his arms, like, what are you doing, dude? Yeah, I don't know either. But we do see him hanging out in a, in a shot of, of the video with uh, leaning against the car with fucking uh, the, Dr. Dre. I'm like, what? What? Okay. Um, but Tupac's here. Tupac. 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 So, uh, yeah. It's like he's, he, 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 uh, I don't know. I don't even know what else to say. It's Tupac. He's in this. He's in this scene. It's his first movie. Uh, his career kind of blew up not long after this film was released. Uh, and then he went on to pass away five years later after being shot, uh, in a drive by. Unfortunately, um, but yeah, so the soundtrack that's that. Let's move on to pros and cons. Before I take on any job, I look at it the same way as it takes to make the thing positive versus negative. Now, you mix a little bit of this with a little bit of that, and you get a reaction. I'll start. My, my pros. Uh, solid cast. Standout makeup uh, effects. Um, a lot of the humor sticks to me. Um, and has stuck with me for decades. It's, you know, in defense of the film's terrible reputation over the years, like, look, you've chosen to watch a fucking horror comedy with Chevy Chase and John Candy and Drag that's directed by one of the Ghostbusters. You know damn well what kind of movie you're about to get into when you hit the play button. So, you know, the people that bitch about it being immature or, you know, the jokes missed to be or whatever, I, I, I'm not buying it completely. So, um, and, and Tupac, you know, because why the hell not? Uh, those are my pros that I wrote down. I tried not to go too overboard this week with the pros and cons, so I just kind of bounced them out. Um, what do you have for this? 
I don't have a ton of pros and I, I don't mean to like beat this movie down, but you know, there's only a few things I could really call out as pros for me. Uh, first would be like the set design and practical effects. All that shit looks great. Like the inside the mansion, everything looks cool. Um, all the props they got, like everything just looks like it fits. Like this movie looks really right. good. Obviously we talked about the cinematography, yeah. Dean Cundy, like, the movie looks great. Like, I, you know, I can definitely tell they put a lot of care into all that stuff. And I, mm, I, I can tell that that's what Aykroyd really had envisioned with all the contraptions and crazy shit. And I mean, it even uh, pays it off, like, because he talks about getting his, uh, the judge talks about getting his degree in engineering. So it even has like a little explanation as to why all this crazy shit is in this uh, mansion in this movie, but everything as far as like the special effects sets is all great. The bone stripper is fucking cool. Like, honestly, it's one of the like coolest type things, you know, I've always remembered that that always stands out. Uh, So to me, that's uh, great. Uh, I mean, that's pretty much it. Like the, the, that's where I think the, film strong suits i mean it has a strong cast like it has a lot of a-list stars i don't think any of them really live up to their potential but you know if you're just looking on paper i think the cast is pretty good um that's really it for me as far as pros like you know i think that's where the movie really thrives is just the setting and the practical stuff that's where the buck stops with you pretty much yeah like i i didn't hate all the other stuff like the comedy in it there's a there's a few things that land like one thing that I laugh my ass off rewatching this at the end, the BMW that's fucking stripped down, and then the guy is like fucking cleaning <laughs> it. Like I, you know, it's like there's good some good yeah. jokes in there, but yeah, Mike's out there yeah. fucking cleaning. I I noticed that He's too. Like cleaning feeling, it with yeah. like a little speck, and it's a fucking frame. The rest of the car, like you know, <laughs> like there is funny stuff in it, but it's just spread a little too thin, in my opinion. But yeah, that that's a pros for me. All right, uh, let's do cons now. For me, uh, I wrote down three real quick. Uh, starts to fall apart before the third act. You can really tell that they're struggling to find the, the to bring the film home in the, in, in the end. Uh, John Candy's Dennis suddenly disappears from the film, and it's all left to a character. She's mute, so all of Candy's humor and performance just depends on his physical comedy, which I do not doubt. Um, it just sucks. Uh, and the pecker nose joke definitely overstays its welcome. Like, that's typically a one-and-done gag, but for it to be in this movie for as long as it is after we see it, like, up close, when Chevy Chase is, like, peeking through the wall and shit, it's like, okay, this movie, I didn't need to see all that. If your legs are bending... Anyway, I don't know. Whatever. Um, how about you, Corey? What are your cons? The number one con I would say for me for this movie is the writing. I think the writing is just pretty bad in this film. Really? Yeah. I th- it's just. I mean, it's not an award-winning drop script or anything like that by any means. But I didn't think it was too terrible. Yeah, but go on. I'm all ears. It's just, You've got my attention. It's just lazy to me. I mean, just the whole plot, like. The whole setup just makes no sense. I mean, to me, there's a lot more coherent and better ways to get the people in the car heading towards the town. And right. once they get there, it's fine. Like the middle of the movie's 
fine like for what it is i really feel like it's the ending and the beginning and you know the whole nonsensical Uh ending with like all the police officers knowing it's just like too many coincidences like or just things like you could tell weren't really thought out and he was just like you know accurate it's just like oh well they gotta get there so she's gonna ask to borrow his car even though it makes no fucking (laughs) sense and the brazilians are going with him even though it makes no goddamn sense to me uh and then at the ending like when they're telling the cops and then all of a sudden they're in on it and then but all of a sudden now the fucking place is exploding makes no goddamn sense i mean you knew it was probably gonna happen like the place was going to explode at some point, but like it was just yeah. That's why they set these things up early on because we know like it's basically saying remember this shit because it's going to come into play later on, and it they does like there's like nothing is set up. Everything they set up is executed in the end, so there's at least that. It happening. is, but here's the thing: like to me, a funny bit would have been like you know they have this place that has the fire going on underneath all this time. And then, like, Chevy lights a cigar in, a, like, a bad spot, and the whole fucking thing goes, you know, just something, like, other than it just randomly fucking happens. You know, just a funny gag, like, a, a character doing something silly or small ends up destroying this whole place that's been around for, like, a hundred years or whatever. To me, that would be a little funnier. You know, I'm not a writer or anything, but it just seems odd. Yeah. There's just a lot of coincidences, a lot of things that don't add up to me that really drag the film down. So that would be my number one con uh my next one is there's some parts that the horror comedy blend works there's other parts that don't i mean overall i wouldn't call this movie very funny and i wouldn't call it very scary it doesn't have the there's a couple spots like i said that make me laugh like chevy has a couple good quips in it but i wouldn't say he's very good demi moore i would say and I don't necessarily blame her all the way because it sounds like she wasn't given the best direction by Ackroyd, but she is, I think, fucking terrible in this movie. Like, it, uh, I cringe watching her like, when she's talking to, like, Damn. Devo. Yeah, she's bad. Yeah. She's bad. I don't blame her. I think it was probably the direction, too. I mean, I don't think she's, like, award-winning, but I don't think she's, like, like the writing. Like, I don't think it's as bad as your... I mean, yeah, dude, different strokes. That's why I love having you. Difference of opinions. It makes for good conversations. I mean, her so. whole character. But go on. I'm she's all supposed ears. to be like this rich, smart lawyer. But then she finds out like a guy backstabbed her, two-timed her. And then she's going to run to Atlantic City to confront them. Which goes nowhere. That is the one thing that's set up that just kind of like doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, and it, but it makes her character look like just like very... I don't know, stupid almost, or like compulsive, like she's this woman who's hurt, and now she's gonna go confront, I don't know, it just for the character she's supposed to be, like the smart lawyer, it doesn't quite add up to me like that whole plot thing, so yeah, just some of the performances, I mean, I like Dan Aykroyd, I think he does fine, like I I can tell he's having fun, like I can tell he was loving being the judge did I need Dan Aykroyd diaper baby? Not so much, I I I didn't necessarily need that. So some of the performances are off in the movie for me. Um, yeah, and the horror comedy just doesn't work. So that's my main cons. Uh, let's do Mulligan moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? For me, that final act, bro. 
Dude, it feels like it's so rushed to rap. Like, everyone's just scrambling to be like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, there's this funny bit with Looney Tunes that always works with Body Coyote and, and, and Bugs Bunny and everything. Well, let's do that. Warner Brothers, we got the property. We can use little sound effects. Maybe throw in a little sample from the score if need be. But um, I get the why and everything. But for me, it's like, come on. Uh, no. No. No, no, this doesn't work. It's just, it's too tacky. It's a little, that one is too on the nose. So, how about you? What, what would you change? Mine's exactly the same. The third act, uh, like I said, without even knowing anything about this movie, because I really don't know much about the movie, I could tell that he had no idea how to bring it home. Uh, so the whole third act, I would even add kind of, so some of the first act like until they get into the car the whole setup is kind of clunky to me as well but the third act especially i mean it just felt like it was like tacked on tacked on i mean i would have almost been better if they just got away on the train and they made some jokes on the train that was the end of the movie <laughs> rather than what we actually got you know i'm not saying there's not a better ending right. there is a better ending in there i'm sure but i would almost take that like them on the train getting out of there and joking about it or maybe having the train stop or so I would almost take that over what we got. You know, the, the ending's pretty bad in this. I forgot how bad it was until I rewatched it. So that's mine. All right. Um about finger licking good. Finger licking good. Uh so the bone stripper introduction, because it just nails the blend of horror and comedy. Uh, plus that theme song slaps. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, it's like that. Uh, I think I'm going to give this one a tie. I think it's between that and the, uh, the sequence where, uh, Dennis is letting, uh, Chris and Diane, uh, go throughout the house to escape. And the many places he opens up are just kind of like hidden passages and, and, and walkways and slides that are all behind the walls and stuff like that and anytime a movie does uh, this whole gimmick where like you know there's people behind the walls and everything like that like you see it and the people under the stairs and, and, and whatnot um, but you know it, it's just something that's always worked for me um, I don't know which one I like more god damn it <laughs> I don't know. I'm both equal. It's my answer. I'm gonna be different for this episode, because um, it's 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 hard. I don't know, or I could just cancel them out completely and just you know, uh, the, the bone stripper, bone stripper scene. So how about you? Well, I was gonna. Mine was between two as well. So mine was between the bone stripper introduction because you're right. Like the song is badass. Like anytime you have a song just for fucking like machine in a movie. I'm cool with like it's just so cool that they like oh, have yeah, this song right. for this badass looking thing. And I, I like the whole like Daniel Baldwin, like just them laughing and then like the funny line with the fifth dimension. Like I like that whole scene just because like you could see the judge, he's just like fucking laugh and he's like, Yeah, hey, you assholes, you're about to get ground up in a few minutes. Like <laughs> you can just tell the judge don't <laughs> give a fuck. It's like you it jokes on you. Yeah, because I think he even uh it's in the line, like when he's sent sentencing them, he's like, you know, since you're oblivious and all this, you're sentenced to death right now. <laughs> like, and he just fucking ships him off on the treadmill. 
So uh, that would be my first thought. But then my other one is the whole digital underground scene. So I'm going to pick that, the digital underground fucking all uh, all around the world same song like i i just love that shit like it's just so ridiculous like to me that's where the movie really shines just because it's so memorable and fucking ridiculous to see dan Aykroyd in this old man's makeup playing this fucking organ <laughs> with like this new hip-hop band and then he lets them go like when i first was uh saw this movie i thought he was gonna fucking kill them all like i really did like it's just the fact that he just let yeah you would think that yeah uh yeah, he kind of get he le- le- he leaves it on the impression for just enough time to you know it- it's crazy. Yeah, because when even watching it now, I knew what happens, but and he's like, ah, about your sentence, and then you think the hammer's gonna drop, and then he's like, nah, you guys can go because they're not bankers, so you know they're good. They're musicians. They're not bankers, so they can get rolling. But yeah, that whole scene, I like I said, I I'm, I literally just want to get that video or that scene and just fucking just show it to people. You're like, ah, you like hip hop, huh? You ever seen this fucking video, Digital Underground? All right, well then let's uh, talk about our MVP for the movie. All right, now you might think I'm a little biased, but I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. And the most valuable player is. You want to go first for your MVP? Sure, mine might not be one you expect, um, you know, because I'll just go through it. Dan Aykroyd was good in the movie. Like, he had some good spots. Like, I mean, he looked cool in the makeup. But what drags it down for me that I can't make him the MVP is the fucking diaper baby. I could have did without all that shit. Um, Bobo. Yeah, Bobo. Uh, I could have did without that shit. Um, Demi Moore, like I already said, I thought was terrible, god awful. Chevy Chase was kind of in the middle. He had a couple good spots, and then hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let's go back to Demi Moore. You say terrible. She's got awful. Like you were sh- you really? I can't get all. I I, I can't get around. She's making thing. out with a dude she just fucking I mean, met. Like it, just her whole character and the whole portrayal. Yeah, she's bad in my opinion. Because she's just uh, clueless and and lost and and not thinking straight. And she's you know and she's in the middle of just in peril and dare I say a damsel in distress. You know I don't know. I guess I'm. I don't even know why the fuck I'm defending the Demi more the way I am right now, but I don't know. I, same in the same manner, I can't believe you're ripping her apart the way you are, buddy. But that's okay. Um, all right, I, I I get it though. I guess different strokes, different folks. Uh, proceed, carry yeah. on. But I don't know. She's just like it, Chevy Chase. Even though I'm, I didn't think he was a really likable character in this movie. At least he had a few funny spots. Like at no point did Demi Moore do anything that I thought was funny. Did I think she was good in a scene that was scary? I I just don't think she really added anything to the film. So I, I, I don't know. I'll leave it at that. I'm not going to tear her anymore. But you know, Chevy was in the middle of the road for me in the movie. Like not definitely not his worst performance or film. Uh, Caddyshack too would fucking beg to differ on that one as far as like worst performance, but uh, mine has to go to John Candy just by kind of default, just because even though he's like a mute in half the movie, I think he comes off the best. Like I really liked his Dennis character. I would say the Dennis character is probably the most likable character in the whole movie for me, 
just because I can sympathize with him. Like he's stuck in this shitty place with his family. He's trying to just be reasonable and do his job as a um, law enforcement officer. And he gets shit on all the time by the judge. And then he meets these uh, Brazilian heirs and gets to move away and be their private security. So I, I appreciated uh, John Dennis. And also, uh, there's a little more depth to his character because uh, you see he's probably been through some shit. Like when he's dealing with Daniel Baldwin and Baldwin pulls a gun on him, he's like, oh, no, please don't shoot. Fucking just pulls out the Uzi or whatever it was right in his face. You can tell uh, Dennis uh, or John Candy's character has seen some shit at that point. So I, I appreciated uh, that whole character. So I, I got to give it to John Candy for me. Oh, my turn then. Uh, for me, it's Dan Aykroyd. I'm not, I'm not even going to just beat around the bush with it. I'm just going to come out with it. Uh, I, I feel like the man has earned it. Uh, not only is he in the film playing just numerous characters, uh, he just put in the hard work writing it, maintaining himself, you know, all things considered, battling the, the studio, uh, which is a challenge in its own uh efforts uh and and yeah just knowing what he went through and and seeing you know the fact that he was even able to get this movie out um when it came out um is, is a win and uh yeah just so so much such such a hard you know job for him i'm sure but uh he managed to pull through and uh come out uh Hopefully a better man on the other side. So, yeah, Dan Aykroyd, though. He's my MVP for this, hands down. So, um, all right. Well, then, shit, let's jump in the final thoughts. Bring this baby home. I say we uh, tie a bow on it and put her to bed. Uh, once again, you want to go first? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I don't want to make you mad or anything, but my final rating is going to be a one and a half out of five. Um. That's not to say I didn't enjoy parts of this movie, but I just can't fathom giving this movie any higher. Like, I, I don't know. To me, it's not a two. One and a half out of five. Um, the movie is very flawed, but I would categorize this for me as a guilty pleasure. I still had a good time rewatching it, uh, you know, so many years right. later when I haven't seen it. There's still enjoyable shit in the movie, even though if, to me, the movie fails overall. Uh, you know, I think, the main problem is Dan Aykroyd can be a good writer. I think in a certain pairing, Dan Aykroyd can do very well. So when you think back to like his hits, Blues Brothers, John Landis, he was a writer with him. Great movie, classic. Uh, Ghostbusters with Harold Ramis, excellent movie. One of my favorite comedies ever made, classic. Dan Aykroyd on his own, uh, not so hot in my opinion so I think he's just one of those guys that's better when he bounces things off of somebody else and has somebody else to kind of rein him in you know I'm not saying it's his fault that he was trying to make a film sounded like a passion project took on a lot of roles and it didn't quite work out but I mean I appreciate his vision in a lot of spots I think the middle of the movie works pretty well I think if the beginning was better and the ending was better and the writing was a little better I think this could be uh, you know like a um, a pretty awesome horror comedy. I, I think it would be much more highly regarded, but unfortunately it's not the way it worked out. So as it is now, I mean, I, I would say it's like a cult uh, hit. I mean, you know, the fact that uh, shout factory put it out on Blu-ray is pretty awesome. 
they got a, a re-release. I mean, I enjoyed uh, watching. It has seeds in there, like the Bone Stripper, the song, that whole setup, the whole mansion, uh, the judge, like the whole like main bit of it of the judge being in this uh, sh- small shitty town, pulling people over, getting rid of the undesirables. Like the seeds there, like that to me all works for like a horror comedy. It's just a lot of the other stuff that isn't fleshed out or quite thought through. And to be honest, I think the movie would be better if Chevy wasn't in. If maybe they would have had somebody else who, you know, maybe was working a little bit harder. Really? I think it would have been better. Yeah, honestly. I don't think Chevy Ooh. drunk it down necessarily, but I think maybe somebody a little bit more motivated could have pulled it up a little bit more. I don't know. It sounds to me like you think that if you feel that he brought I think down. he phoned it in. I, I think he was there because he was friends with Dan Aykroyd and it was a paycheck. I, to me, Chevy Chase, even though I don't know him personally where he went through all that shit, I can usually tell pretty easily whether he's phoning it in for a paycheck or whether he actually gives a shit. I would say in this movie, you know, it was the phoning in variety. I don't think he was really passionate about it. And I think it, it, Chevy's one of those I can, at least for me, I feel like I can easily tell <laughs> when he's into something and when he's not into something. Again, I hearken back to Caddyshack, too, for that. Um, you know, it's just so obvious. Uh, but again, if you're a fan of horror, fan of comedy, if you grew up around the time we did, I think you could have good memories about this movie. And I think it's definitely worth rewatching. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest sin of a movie is to be boring. This movie is not boring. I would not categorize that this movie is boring at all. It might have crazy off the wall no. shit and some terrible writing. This movie is not boring. I think there's entertainment to be had out of it. And I'm not mad to rewatch it, honestly, I, in several years down the road and I kind of get hazy in my head again I would rewatch it again and I think I'd have a good time so despite the low rating I think uh, there's still a lot of likable things in the film alright my final rating I'm giving this movie three and a half out of five um, it's essentially a, a horror movie featuring Chevy Chase being his usual smart ass quipping self uh, just with, with, with uh, great special effects courtesy of uh, David B. Miller um and, and the cast that it has it's a powerhouse cast plus it's got taylor uh negron in it so you know it's a win in my book um and and yeah it holds up to me personally you know uh i i just um i find the humor and it's an enjoyable comedy that just i've been watching all my life so and i will continue to watch so yeah uh three and a half um I, the the thought of a four star rating for this crossed my mind, but then I thought to myself, no one will probably ever take me seriously again <laughs> if I give this a four out of five. Then again, they're probably going to question my three and a half think, out of five. But that's I think whatever. shout factories are going to be like emailing you. Can we put your rating on the fucking box? <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna repress it, put it back out <laughs> for your quote. Thank you, sir. Uh, so yeah. Uh, um, all right, well, uh, gang, this episode is sponsored by Death Row Records. There's a joke here somewhere. I just value my life, therefore mum's the word. And that's going to signal the end of our episode on Nothing But Trouble, a film that absolutely gets the film effect seal of approval. And as we say at the end of the very film effect episode, that'll bring things home for this edition of the show. 
one down, many more to follow. You can check out our ever-growing collection of previous episodes over at thefulleffectpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Please follow us on social media for all future announcements and up-to-minute updates and news, uh, you know, that, that, that. As they're announced, Facebook, Instagram, we're at the Film Effect Podcast, Twitter at Film Effect Pod, TikTok at Film Effect Podcast, and email us whenever the Film Effect Podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from each and every one of you guys. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just scroll down to the bottom of our episode list and leave us an honest rating review or both. If you're listening on Spotify, then you can now listen. You can now leave us a reading on the app by going to our main page, pushing the three-dot icon, and selecting Rate Show. And if you're listening on another platform that isn't Apple or Spotify, then you can simply go to thefilmeffectpodcast.com slash reviews and leave us an honest rating and review directly from there. We want to hear from you guys. No matter what the platform is, everyone now has options. Corey, you have no idea how much I appreciate having you on with me. So once again, thank you sincerely. Yeah, no, it was cool being on. I mean, I, you know, we definitely have a tie to this movie to our childhood because I remember, I don't distinctly remember like the two of us sitting together watching this movie, but I remember it was a movie we both watched no. a lot. And I, I know we talked about it like when we were kids in the past. Right. So yeah, it was cool revisiting because like I said, I don't think I had seen this movie like since the cable days, like in the early to mid 90s when this was uh running so yeah it was fun very good all right oh if you thought we were done for the week after dropping this episode you're sadly mistaken because we'll be back yet again this thursday to sit down and discuss the underrated dark comedy death the smoochie which celebrated its 20th anniversary the same day as panic room or maybe we covered last week, just in case you guys just came out from one of your rock and are still adjusting to everything. And it boggles my fucking mind that the two movies you just mentioned, Panic Room and Death to Smoochie, do not have a Blu-ray release. But the fucking movie we're talking about today, Nothing But Trouble, does have a Blu-ray release. It just boggles my mind, like how that shit works. Which just, which, which just got a Blu-ray release just late last year. And for the first time, you can now see the film in widescreen format instead of that pan and scan bullshit from the old DVD and the and the and the snap case and all that bullshit. So, uh, real quick before we get out of here, Corey, what can listeners expect to hear on our Death to Smoochie episode later this week? Uh, I mean, I I won't lie, I'm a huge fan of Death to Smoochie, so I I think uh, Danny DeVito is a director. I think he's one of the most underrated. Like, I'm a huge fan of like War of the Roses. Matilda, uh, obviously, like I just mentioned, that's a smoochie. Uh, he just has such a unique vision. So it's always sunny. Yeah, it's always sunny. Um, he just has a very unique voice and vision uh, in his movies. Like instantly, uh, even if you didn't tell me who it was directed by, I could watch one of his movies and tell just by the style. So yeah, I'm excited. That the smoochie's always been um, one of my favorite dark comedies. I think it's one that doesn't pitch perfect. So, you know, we'll get into all that shit uh, in a few days. All right. Uh, well then, guys, gals, until Thursday's Death the Smoochie episode, it's been fun, but now it's done. Say goodbye, Corey. Bye, and just remember, you know, don't try to run from the cops, even if you're in a BMW. You know, it's a Beamer, but don't try to run from the cops, people. Just pull over. That's right, because you never know, they might have Nas, just like Vin Diesel. Alright gang, 
until Thursday. Take care now. Bye-bye. See you guys. This concludes our broadcast day.